evening, everyone, and welcome to the podcast. Tonight, we're going to be talking about growing your inner writer. Last year, around July, we did a podcast about nurturing your creative spirit, and it was posted on CastBox in October. Uh, And we talked about the impact of fandom on the creative process and how readers can impact your creative process in negative and in positive ways, mostly negative, to be honest, to be honest, negative ways. Um, Tonight, we're going to talk about um, growing as a writer, getting better. Because one of the most disheartening things I see in fandom is that sometimes the impact of readers and fandom creep, you see writers devolving de-evolving yeah and they it's like they're losing something and sometimes it's kind of hard to figure out what that quality is that they're losing is it the inspiration is are they getting bogged down in popular tropes are they getting bogged down in listening to their reader are they overly invested in the validation of comments and kudos um all those things come into play uh, but there's nothing sadder to me as a writer than seeing another writer stagnating. Unless it's seeing or that same writer go backward. Go backward. That's, and it, I've seen that in in more than one writer, where um, I've seen them take big steps back in their in their craft, and it's really unfortunate when that happens. And a lot of times, it's not hard to pinpoint what's what the cause of it is. But I, I, I think that. I had to mute myself to cough. <laughs> My neighbors in their damn grass. Oh, I'm, I'm going to fucking lose it. Anyways, um, I one, one of the best ways that you learn as a writer and grow as a writer is to read. And to read a lot. Um, realistically, you should invest in as much time reading as you do writing. Because that's, you're feeding you're feeding your your brain. You're feeding your creativity. You're feeding your process by exposing yourself to other writers, um, and their and their creative process as well. The problem is is that there are <laughs> there's a lot to read in fandom that you don't need to be reading with that kind of goal in mind, yeah. because that's how fandom creep happens, where you have. Um, really bad habits move from one writer to another. Like that whole blackmailing for comments thing or the one-sided conversation thing when you're in the POV character. Um, And I'm guilty of that one by accident because I head hopped, which I don't normally do. But sometimes, I mean, I did it when I was very young and I trained myself out of it mostly by writing in first person and then moving back into third person when I got that under control. And I honestly kind of blame Nora Roberts for it because my mom loved Nora Roberts and she read a lot of Nora Roberts and Nora Roberts head hops like a motherfucker and don't give a fuck. Yeah. I mean, I see, I, I see writers that I, I tried reading something by somebody recently. I swear they must've had, aside from the fact that they had like every character had a POV. And it, mm. you, I imagine if you were to press them, they would tell you that they wrote an omniscient POV, but that that's an, they weren't. It wasn't. It was just it was just a head hopping every two or three paragraphs, um, and um, that's not how omniscient POV works. Is it's it's not going deep into a different POV every few paragraphs. So, um, people 
it, it, in a way, it's it's kind of um, shortcutting the writing process, um, and these those kinds of those kinds of things that when I see them like persist in somebody's writing it it is it, it, because it takes more work to convey the same amount of information in one character's POV or two characters if you could just hop into anybody's head at any time you can you can shave off tons of words in, in a way it's lazy um, I think one of the things that happens I think sometimes to writers is you have to decide what kind of writer you want to be. And I think that there are a lot of writers in our writer community who know what kind of writer they want to be. And they know where their lines are, right? Like they see writers sometimes using gimmicks to get attention and they know that that's not where they want to go. But not every new, especially the newer authors or authors who are kind of struggling to find where they where they are, find their own voice, they see these gimmicks people use, um, which to me are attention gimmicks a lot of times. And they go, well, I'll try that, thinking that, it, and that that those things have nothing to do with writing, right? Um, but they think that if they get, I think there's an association between validation and good craft, and there is absolutely that any any there's any association between those two things is false, because sometimes people who have really good craft get validation for it, and sometimes people who have really bad craft get validation for it. So there's no truism there. Um, I can say with absolutely 100% certainty that there are at least a hundred books that were written this year that are beautiful and amazing and thoughtful and exciting <clears throat> and so astounding they'd make you cry and they will never be published and they will never be read beyond a small circle of friends. So excellent craft can't equal publication. It can't equal validation. It just doesn't work that way. So, and there are authors I read um, in fandom who I think have beautiful wordcraft, who um, tell stories really well, and they aren't the authors who are getting a ton of attention, but they still keep writing, and I don't see them complaining about lack of attention. Um, and clearly they know the kind of writer they want to be. They know. But then, by the same token, there are, you know, authors who will just whine endlessly that they're not getting enough comments, kudos, da 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 da, and that they don't know how to function without that validation in their writing. Well, I, I, then I would challenge, what is your goal in your writing? Do you know what kind of writer you are? Because if you're just writing for attention, You're then, not a writer. Oh, yeah. oh hot take. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I wrote for years and never showed anybody I mean, years, like over a decade. Except for my mom. My mom read my first book. I don't think I ever showed the first book I wrote to anyone. It's probably still floating around on a floppy disk somewhere. Um, not not actually floppy. You know, one of the little yeah. and a quarter inch diskettes. Um, but you know, I I wrote because I I had I had all these stories rattling around in my head, and I just I wanted to write, and I just kept on writing and kept on writing. Um, we talk about writers being born, because they are. An artist is born. You you can hone that skill. You can be taught grammar. You can be taught composition. You can be taught how to work with various tools. But you're born with that. That creative spirit is in you when you when you enter the world. Some people just have 
a storytelling nature. They have stories to tell. And I think the more they tell stories, the more stories they have to tell. And they'll do that whether there's an audience or not, whether they're sharing it with an audience or not. I think often people who are storytellers, if they want an audience, they'll have an audience. But um, often, sometimes it doesn't matter, right? Um, I have completed stories I've never shared with anybody. And I might, it could be that those stories will never get shared with anybody. Um, yeah, I mean, I have millions upon millions of words that no one's ever seen. <laughs> I mean, I have, compl- I, have to, I have completed X-Files work that never got posted. And um, I mentioned that to me when they said, well, can you post them if they never were posted? Well, I don't well, know. There's a lot, quite, actually quite a few reasons why I wouldn't. For starters, my writing files changed quite a bit since I wrote those. So I would need to rewrite them so that they weren't quite so, they were more dark. like the way I write today. They are quite dark too. Um, <laughs> but also so they're more like the way I write today. They're also, um, I think they're almost all in first person. Um which I think my style in first person back then was very different than how I would write in first person now. So it would be connect. Also, there were a couple people who did, there was, there was one person who read those stories. So there was one person who had seen those stories back then. Um, she's actually not alive anymore, which is very sad, but I don't know. I can't swear because she's not still living and I can't ask her that those stories were never seen by anybody else. So you could end up actually outing your previous name. Yeah, which is something I've been very careful to like let that whole thing die because that there were some very, a lot of very toxic situations for me around the my original fandom, my life, original life in fandom, and just about everything that could go wrong for somebody in fandom went wrong, and it kind of like almost ruined my my love of writing, and I learned a lot about how to function in fandom, how to, what kind of writer I wanted to be in fandom. Um, and what kind of writer I want to be in general through those experiences. Uh, Talking about your craft changing. Someone mentioned in the chat room, Herman Melville. Um, the thing is, is that Melville isn't publishable today. Just like I don't believe any of the Bronte sisters could get published today. Oh, God. Um, and it's not a reflection on their writing quality or their story. But it's about how craft has changed and how what was acceptable a hundred years ago or two hundred years ago, Dickens couldn't get published today either, um, isn't marketable today. There probably isn't a publisher on earth that would touch the grapes of wrath if it wasn't a classic. No, you know what, Lord of the Rings? If Lord, of the, they would be like, "Look, dude, you've told us a great story. We love all these characters, but you know what we need? We got plenty of violence. The, the death is on point. The battles are great." The word count is awesome. People are going to eat this shit up. It's going to be fantastic. What you need, to, what, what what we need is you to add some fucking. <laughs> they probably would if he if he was presenting the Hobbit. I think they'd be fine with a lot of the Hobbit because it was pretty it was pretty tight. The yeah, Hobbit was pretty tight comparatively. But, but it was also a children's book, right? The Lord Hobbit is one A. Lord so. of the Rings would have would have gotten. Um, an edit and a half they would have they and then like, it had been like insert sex scene here insert right. sex scene here it'd be like so basically they'd have been like hey george could you help this man out <laughs> he's so missing think, all the fucking I think, I think it i think i think a lot of high fantasy 
has I don't think the standards for high fantasy have actually evolved all that much. No, um, no, the, I agree. The bar, the, the bar hasn't shifted as opposed to like America, you know, the kind of the great you know American novel type thing. That bar has changed a lot, um, and even the the bar for romance novels has changed. I mean, even from the eighties. Yeah, tremendous. I mean. Decade over decade, it's I mean, even 80s, 90s, every decade, the bar changes significantly. Um, there are romances that I know I read and loved in the 80s that I'd be horrified if I read them now. I'm, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, I just don't read them. I don't, I don't want my life, I don't want my childhood ruined. Because <laughs> it, it would be awful. I told a story about, um, well, not even just that, Frog. It's, it's Sometimes it's just straight up R word. Straight up. A lot of those body strippers were just there's yeah there's just there's a lot full of, of consent issues. But I I read Clan of the Cave Bear when I was very young. I was like eleven or twelve, and I did not understand what was happening in Clan of the Cave Bear when I read it because I had read romance novels and I didn't understand what was happening. I mean, I understood what was happening, but I didn't understand the context. The the nuance was lost on me. I read it again when I was 18 and I was horrified. I called my mother. I said, how the hell did you let me read this book? <laughs> Actually, you know, the children of earth, is that, is, is that what it's called? The children of earth. I, I actually really enjoy that series. I've not read the clan of the cave bear since I was 18. So I skipped that first book, but um, my favorite is mammoth hunters. Um, and I like the Plains of Passage. I've not read the last book because I I got spoiled for the ending. Um, so I'll never read it. But yeah, the Plains of Passage was one big long road trip. And some of that road trip could have been skipped over. They were, they traveled for a while. We didn't need all of that. But um, yeah. I mean, we all read unfortunate things when we were young. Sometimes by accident. I've told you guys the story before, but... Um, I had, my mom would give me reading lists, you know, and I was, I think I was 12 when she gives me my reading, my next book on my reading list. She wanted me to start reading the Alexandria Quartet by Lawrence Durrell. And, um, so all I had was the title of the first book and the first book in the Alexandria Quartet is titled Justine. So she told me it's on the shelf and I'm 12 y'all. When I go and get Justine off the shelf, I got the wrong book. <laughs> The chat room knows where you're going with this. Because my mama had two books called Justine. And I wasn't there. They're actually the one I pulled off the shelf didn't have an author listed on the, on the, on the bind. It was, it was, it was an old book and it was, it was a, uh, it didn't have, I got the one by the Marquis de Sade, right? So. <laughs> let me tell you, it was, that's not his best work. <laughs> I just got to put that out there. Um <laughs> So after that, anything that I, you know, so like, I think I was 14 or 15 when I wanted to read nine and a half weeks. I told me I was not old enough for that. And I just gave her this look and like, you know, mom, I've already read. And she's like, please don't, please don't remind me. Because I was crying when she came home, when she came home that day. I was like, why did you want me to read this? <laughs> why didn't you stop? <laughs> I did eventually stop because there's a scene I just could not get past in that book. Um, but the real question is, is why does she have Justine by the Marquis de Sade on her bookshelf near her children? 
I don't know. I mean, that was a question I should have I should have asked her then, but I was just like so like freaked out at the time. I was like, Mom, I because that's the kind that. of shit my mom would put in a box under the bed, <laughs> right? Just right there on the bookshelf. But yeah, Mm-mm-mm. yes, it had illustrations. <laughs> but anyway, um, yeah. So at least sometimes we get exposed to stuff that you know early early on in our in our formative years. But but there's um. There's a lot of the classics that I wouldn't call that a classic. That that this is this is a tangent. Um, there there's a lot of classics that I've read that I know are not that I didn't particularly enjoy. Um, I I am a modern reader. I like work stuff that's written in, in a more modern style of prose. I I don't like you know. I've read Shakespeare. There's I I actually the funny thing is even though Shakespeare sometimes I have to kind of pause and think about what the fuck he's saying. I actually enjoy like reading Shakespeare more than I enjoy reading say the Bronte sisters. I usually cannot stand reading Bronte. Um, I didn't ever enjoy reading Dickens. Um, but outside of like you know and I actually um, didn't mind reading Homer. But outside of like Homer and Shakespeare, which be to me is like real, real outliers in terms of my reading preferences, I prefer a modern style of prose. Um, and the classics just aren't it for me. So um, I read Tale of Two Cities in high school, but I could not tell you a damn thing about that book. I think I blocked it out. It's completely, it's just like there's a blank where it should be in my, in my brain. I mean, I, I know I read it. I read Lord of the Flies too. I. <sighs> There were a bunch of boys and it was violent. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I agree Shakespeare is better to read it. Um, but I have read some of, I find especially the comedies, not bad reading. Um, the tragedies are not my favorite. Read, uh, but Tragedy. <laughs> yeah. They're tragic. Don't make me sad. I don't want to be sad. I don't, I don't read to be hurt. I don't want to be hurt by what I read. Oh, I, you know, I, Lord of the Flies absolutely could be published today. Exhibit one, Hunger Games. Exhibit two, Divergent. The Purge. The Purge. Exhibit three, Twilight. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's, that's an interesting bar. I'm just saying that I totally believe the Lord of the Rings could be published today. Not Lord of the Rings, but Lord of the Flies could be published today. Absolutely. In fact, didn't they do like a girl take on Lord of the Flies like a, a, a as a miniseries? So yeah, I absolutely 100% believe that Lord of the Flies could be published today. Um, people like violence. Um, it's But if it was written today, it wouldn't be written in the same style. But the content wouldn't have to change at all. If you update the narrative structure in the prose, it it would hit the New York bestseller list without even a stumble. Because when it boils down to it, is that the YA market loves to see kids get killed. Nah. Maze Runner. The YA, young adult. And even new adult. I mean, all that stuff is really violent. And um, I, that's, but that's adults, right? So, Soiba? On Netflix, <clears throat> but no, I mean, I didn't enjoy Lord of the Rick, Lord of the Flies, but I don't. I I very much think that it's publishable. I mean, today they it would just have a different narrative structure. It, it would conform to modern narrative structure if it was written today, and people would eat that shit up. It'd be a whole trilogy of movies. Yeah, just saying. But I think that as a rule, human beings are fucked up. 
but I think that back when those kinds of novels were being written, um, even like back in the day, of time, I'm not, I'm not talking about going back in times of, as far as Shakespeare, but like Jane Austen or um, Mary Shelley, uh, Oscar Wilde, um, even Kurt Vonnegut. Um, I think that there was a very specific bar. Um, and, it, and even in like in the romance market, um, the, when it was kind of, the, you know, coming into coming into its own, um, there was a specific bar, you know, and, and it, I think that this, the lane was narrower than it is now. It's like, I think that's maybe one of the things that maybe is a little of a struggle for authors now is that there's no target, which in some ways is good because you're not constrained by any perception of the kind what 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 being an author means what kind of stories you have to write or what kind of genres you have to write in or how you have to develop your characters but it also can be intimidating because well, what are you aiming for you know if you don't have that yeah that's a good choice paralysis frog that's a really good way of putting it um and so i think sometimes especially new writers they really flail about as opposed to for what makes them happy is they flail about for what has made somebody else popular um, and that's assuming their intention is because they want to write and not just get attention. So th- there is there is a distinction there, right? Um, and so if they see people getting, you know, popular doing gimmicky stuff, they might try to do gimmicky stuff. Sometimes people embrace tropes that they see that are consistently popular that they actually don't like. And then they're kind of miserable with their own writing. And that is actually, I think, one of the most tragic things I think I see is authors taking on board subject matter and tropes that they actually fundamentally don't like and running with them because they think it's what the readers want. And especially when it comes to finding, when you're trying to find where, what kind of writer you are, especially if you're writing fan fiction, you should be writing to please yourself, not trying to anticipate a reader. And if you were, if you were trying to write to make money, that's a very different thing you there is anticipating the market and looking at market trends and you know but there's reasons why I wouldn't want to do that for a living because I think it would suck the joy right out of my writing is if I'm sitting there trying to anticipate what tropes people are wanting to read on on um Kindle Unlimited these days and that would drive me bonkers um so it's not healthy it's Um, not but you see fandom, you see writers in fandom um, even switching, like, writing a popular pairing just to get attention. When they don't even, really actually care about the pairing. Even Or even tagging the pairing when it doesn't even exist in their story, just because they hope that people who read that pairing will. Which is infuriating as fuck. I can't be tell honest. you how many, how many stories I've read that are tagged for Buck Eddie, and you're like, they're not even on screen mm-hmm. together in the story. Not once. And, and then the author will tell you, you could read it as Buck Eddie if you want. And I'm like, actually, no, it, it doesn't read like Buck Eddie at all. Not even through rose-tinted slash goggles could this be interpreted as a slash story. So, um, and it, I get that it's difficult. If, you, if you're really drawn to wanting to write, let's say, uh, Bobby and Athena. Okay, let's say, that, let's say that's, that's your jam. That's what you really want to write. And... 95% of the fandom is really focused on Buck and Eddie. I can see how that could be frustrating. I can see it. But if you're, if that right there, that frustration and being in that frustration means you're already focused on the fact that you don't feel like that there's enough space for you. And there is. And there are a lot of people who like 
Abby and Athena, because it is a lesser lesser written pair as a focus. They're they're in tons of stories as a side pair, but as a focus pair, they're not in. They're not the focus as much. The people who really like that are so much more grateful for the authors who I, do write. I am. I'm zero drafting a Bobby Athena story that's time travel. <clears throat> right now, my zero draft is putting me around 50k, um, but I'm nowhere near finished. I'm I'm probably looking at about 150k. I mean, it's a good pairing. I really like it. Um, and I've never had anything that just jumped out at me as, with them as the focus that I really wanted to write. Um, but if I ever did, I would just, I would go forward with it, even even though I know that it would not be as popular as a Buck Eddy story because it would be what I wanted to write. And I think that that's the important thing for any author is that you focus on what you want to write. And if you want to write the same trope over and over and over and over again, well, I mean, part of me kind of would like to talk to you to find out a little bit like what's going on why are you stuck in this trope it's okay there's nothing wrong with that but that staying that to me that starts to look like somebody stalled out and i do see authors stall out which isn't growth but um on the other hand some people do write the same trope they reimagine it a million different ways and you do see their word craft and their style improve and change and their character craft evolve, even as they're continuing to explore the same trope over and over and over again. So it, an author can get stuck in a trope, but also they can be in a trope for a long time and it can also be, they're still evolving. So it all just depends upon, are they still, um, but if that's what you want to do, if you just want to like get all up in Tony leaves NCIS and that's all you want to write is a million ways for Tony to leave NCIS, then you write that. So there are lots of ways you can do that. Lots of ways that can go. So many points. There are so, I mean, I could give you a list of all the different times that it would make perfect sense for him to leave. <laughs> I had this idea about, um, cause I'm bitter. I'm not as bitter as Jilly, but I am bitter. I'm like secondhand bitter about 911. Um, and <laughs> I even titled this, my working title of the story is Jilly is Bitter. <laughs> it is. I've seen the list. It's, it's that. But um, <clears throat> I have this idea where instead of suing, Buck just transferred to a different station. And it's been a year and Bobby wants him back. And there's a meeting about it and his current captain... Um, strolls into the meeting and basically spends a half hour telling them all to kiss her ass that that he's not getting Buckley back ever. So I just, it's just in my brain. And so eventually it's going to come out because it's in my brain. You know, sometimes sometimes when you have this idea that just kind of percolates in your brain for a while, it's just like, yeah, yeah, it's coming out. And so, um, yeah. I mean, sometimes you just gotta, I'm, I'm in a, I'm in definitely in a Buck leaves the 118 kind of groove. I think I've got three stories in process where he transfers or leaves or go to a different department. Um, not around. Well, I want to write him into 56 doing like search and rescue. I would also probably like to do him doing search and search and rescue, but you have that idea that I really like a lot. And I don't know if I could even do it justice after what you told me you were going to do. Um, 
And I also would like to ride him going to, to the California smoke um, jumpers. Smoke jumpers would be fun. Um, so I have one story where he goes to um, work with that guy from the. Tandard. I'm on board, Ray. I have. I I'm have on one board it. He, I have one where he goes to L.A. County Fire Department, and I have one where he goes to the 133. Um, in Toxic, he's transferring to one of the Western bureaus for search and rescue, but staying within the LAFD. I have another one where he leaves and goes and becomes a nurse. Um, and then I don't know, but some of that others there's I'm, I'm missing one, but some of that is an exploration of just um, how frustrated I am with some of what I see as like toxic behaviors on the team that are coming out more in season five. Um, and so I have different, different points of him leaving. Um, but it's just, sometimes I just kind of get in this groove of like, this character needs to be elsewhere because I don't, I think the thing is, once I think a toxic culture has kind of developed in a team, sometimes I don't think it's something that's easily fixable, especially not when the problem begins in someone that's in a, basically in a management position. So Gibbs. Yeah. But embracing your ideas is is part of your growth as a writer, and uh, and continuing to grow, and you know doing you know exploring things, experimenting things, trying new things, seeing if they work, not being afraid to fail. Um, I, I think that's one of the, that's one of the biggest things. Sometimes you get into an idea and you go, "Wow, this doesn't work," or "I need to figure out a different way to make this work." And I think one of the things that I find to be, um, sorry, I just kind of head tilted at some. One of the things I find to be the most toxic in some fandom-oriented writers' communities is what I call toxic enablement. Or it's like, it doesn't matter what somebody says they want to do, how how it doesn't make sense from a ripple perspective, how it doesn't make sense from a consequences perspective, how it doesn't jive with what we see of the character. It's just like, oh yeah, you should do that. Yeah, yeah, you should do that. And there's like somebody's, and there's never anybody trying to like tease out well what do you where are you trying to go with this or have you thought about what it would mean i don't mean like shoot people's ideas down in public that's not it but there's just this blanket enablement like and sometimes even like encouraging them to make it less coherent um oh yeah they should do that and they should definitely do it while naked um riding bicycles down the freeway it's like (laughs) just you know be be supportive but don't support madness I mean, I can tell when someone's like presenting an idea and they're not, they're not actually, they say they're asking for help, but they're not actually asking for help. They just want somebody to validate them. You can tease that out pretty quickly. Because if you start kind of pushing gently, asking questions, and it's done through questions, like, well, but what do you think the, the consequences would be, you know, if this character, you know, started carrying a gun to work as a firefighter? What do you think the consequences would be? You know, where, where, where would that go? Um, I understand that you need this this to work for the scene that you have in mind, but what do you think the consequences would be? And try to get them to kind of see some of the consequences of the ripples on their own. Um, and that's kind of like how I usually handle discussions like that as well. Kind of like, well, what do you think that, that this would happen if you did this? Or um, What are the rules about that? What are the laws about that? What laws are being broken and what's going to be the result? It's not good. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes you tell people, sometimes people just don't 
want to hear anything but and you'll get a sense of that if you're if you're in a writing group and you're somebody's talking about an idea you'll get a sense very quickly if they don't want anything but positive validation for their idea and in that case if and if you if you know this is really not good this is to either bad character craft or bad story craft it, it ignores ripples completely it doesn't make sense um you don't have to say anything just back away from the conversation you are not required to support somebody else's poor judgment it can be difficult sometimes to back away from a conversation especially if you don't want to lie but you also don't want to hurt their feelings it's kind of like when you go on a date and the date's going terribly and you've not set up an escape call and you can't figure out how to so you go to the bathroom and you text your friend and say, hey, can you have an emergency in like five minutes? I need an exit. So what you do if you're in a group conversation, say like on Just Right, and this person's doing this, um, and you and you kind of want to be out of the conversation, you text one of your friends, you DM them and say, hey, could you in about three or four minutes come into this channel and change the subject? Just drop a bomb. <laughs> just, just throw a boulder in this pond because we need, some, we need something else. <laughs> we need we need to move on from this conversation <coughs> well but sometimes i mean you have to be sometimes you have to be a little bit delicate about how you change a conversation especially if the it's a craft oriented conversation or if somebody if they're in a channel where it's like we have channels over on um just right this like idea bounce um if they're in that channel and people are in that channel to help somebody bounce an idea it's that's it's really potentially Hard. very difficult to to change the subject in which case you might just need an extraction plan um sorry to cut this short i have to go insert chore but also at some point if somebody is just not wanting to um like i i've talked before about um i helped somebody they they asked me for feedback on an idea um, it was sort of, it was a little bit, they asked me, they, what they said they wanted was alpha read, but they didn't have anything for me to read. They just had kind of a concept document, which is more concept development than it is alpha reading. But yeah. if there's actually nothing to read, um, it's, it, I guess it could loosely be called alpha reading, but I wouldn't quite go there. Um, but there, I struggle with my suspension of just around, um, I'll put in the chat what, what the basic concept was, but I'm not going to say it. But the, this, my suspension of disbelief was challenged. Um, my suspension of disbelief just took a seat on Chris King's porch. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, my kind of jumped <laughs> off a bridge and died. It was the whole Humpty Dumpty thing. Um, and so I expressed what my, my issues were about why I didn't think this would work. Um, and what they could maybe do instead. Um and we, we talked about it quite a bit. And I, and I tried to be delicate about it. Because like, I, I asked it first, well, what are you trying to accomplish with this? What is your end goal? What does this plot device achieve for you? Um, and in, in the end, I, you know, they were, I could tell that, I, I could tell by the tone of the conversation, for whatever reason, even though there were other potential paths. And what they eventually told me was that they just didn't like any of the other ideas that would get them to the same end goal as having this plot device that, just even if you gave a note because sometimes you can give a note that say hey i'm hand waving away the requirements for this like i did that i think it i think you have to be a to be an engineer with the lafd you have to have four years on the job 
And I put a note that I kind of was hand waving that away um, or making it two years or something. Um, and people can usually be like, yeah, okay, I don't care if she's, you know. Um, but, you know, if I was giving a note that said I was hand waving away the need to attend the fire academy, people might struggle with that. But there's, there's degrees at which you can ask people to, to, to accept your hand wave. I mean, that's just, that's, that's straight up jazz hands. Right. Um, and a side of spirit fingers. You give it, that's, that really is giving people spirit fingers and, and expecting them to just. Um, so it, they ultimately, they ultimately really wanted this plot device, even though there were ways to achieve the climax of their story, their end game, they could have achieved it through other means. They really wanted this plot device. And that became clear during the course of the conversation. So all I could say delicately was say, look, I just, um, you know, I will cheerlead you doing this, but I just don't see how to make this. It, to me, it fails the suspension of disbelief test. But you, if you're confident about it, then you should go forward and do what you want to do. Because that's always my end answer to an author is you should do what you want to do. At the end of the day, I'm not writing it. You are. But if somebody asks me, if they're soliciting my help, I'm not going to just, I'm not going to be cruel about it. But I told them at the start that it didn't pass the suspension of disbelief test. Um, that you can ask the reader to spend their disbelief about a lot of things. You can put things at their author note telling them you're moving the timeline around. And as long as the reader is prepared, they'll deal with a lot. But some things just make your suspension of disbelief die. It just it just can't it can't and when to me once that's broken, you can't I can't get story is a lost cause from a reading perspective. And I've had stories where I've started them, where people have recommended them, and I've started them, and I've my suspension of disbelief has leapt off a bridge. Um, two paragraphs in, I'm like, nope. I was reading something. I mean, I've had that happen in a summary, but <clears throat> that's true. We were reading something. I'm not going to give any context beyond this because it's too recognizable. But it was a dumb thing for my suspension of disbelief. But there was this big confrontation about, like, basically plus size shaming, and plus size was a size ten. I was like, nope. So I read it too. <laughs> I had like, put in um, a message to her. Since when is a size 10 a plus? A plus size. So I, I couldn't get past it. And it's not very far. It's it's very short <coughs> the story. It's like, but I was like, especially since it was a conf there was a confrontation about it, right? Because it was this whole like fat shaming thing, you know, right? And it's like, you know. And, I, and and then it turned out it was about a size 10. I was like, that's like a medium. So I I couldn't get past it. I couldn't I mean, it's like even it. below the national average, which, which we looked at was like a 14, 16, right? Actually, it's a 16, 18 now. It's gone okay. up. Thank okay, you. That's right. That's right. Panorama, yeah. we, all get, we all gained a COVID-19. Um, so it... It was so it it was such a minor little knit, right? It seems like it's such a tiny thing, but my brain like froze and stalled out. And the thing is, we both, Kira and I, both saw the same thing and had to just kind of nope out over it because it was just when your suspension of just belief is hit hard on something, especially something the author is making a big point of. It's a little tone deaf, really, and it speaks to the author's perspective, which I appreciate them tackling the subject of fat, of fat shaming. But also saying that a size 10 is plus size is fat shaming. Epically. That's like saying you don't see color. You ever encountered one of those people who will tell you they're not racist because they don't see color? Back away. Right. 
back far away because that's some shit. That's some shit. Because you don't get to choose not to not to acknowledge somebody else's ethnicity. Are you fucking serious? Anyways, I don't want to get on a soapbox because that's a big one. Tall it's and wide. Right? <laughs> no pun intended. Um, mm -hmm. <laughs> if we're talking about plus sizes. But, you know, <laughs> it's just like, like, whatever. I mean, when a size 16 is 16 is the average to say, which is, which is, which is, which is plus size. So plus size is now the average, but a size 10 I, I know not everybody in the chat, not everybody in the podcast is familiar with U.S. sizing, but 16 would probably be about an extra large. Um, well, it is an extra large. Um, but well, what did we talk about? That we were talking about inches, um, like the a 30 inch waist. What was like a 10? Was a 30 inch waist? Well, was that what it was? I I forget. Well, what we were talking about, we were looking at this chart that showed the evolution of sizes between 1958 when they standardized sizes and when they did it now. And in terms of waist size, a size 20, we're looking at size 20, was about 32 inches in 1958. A size 20 is now 40 inches approximately. So sizes have changed quite a bit. Um, but a, what is a, what is about a size 10 now would be about a 31 inch waist it looks like on this chart mm -hmm. um but a which size, is by no means plus size right but a size 10 would have been about a 25 inch waist so marilyn monroe was a size 12 um and she had about a 20 uh that today would be about a size maybe a four so anyway i can put the chart that we were looking at um that brought that she and I were talking about this. Where but yeah, it, the the suspension of disbelief fell for me for two reasons. One, size ten is not plus size, and two, your lecture, you're you're literally fat shaming in the midst of this, and it was just it was, it, but it, it startling. It was, it, and sometimes you can have a suspension of disbelief over a major plot point, like the major structure of a story, like the thing the whole thing pivot the thing the whole thing pivots on. Which is what happened in this per this person I was talking to, or you can have. Um... Thanks, Vickage. Vickage says an extra large is a U.S. fourteen, which equals a Euro forty. For those of you who are elsewhere, if that will help you with the discussion. So we tend to do combo sizing. So extra large here is like fourteen, but fourteen is definitely the bottom size of the extra large. And so you have um, sometimes an extra. It depends upon the the company because some companies do. Um, an 810 is a medium, a 1214 is a large, uh, 1618. And some people do it differently, like a 1012 is a large, um, a 1416 is an extra large. So it's just. And sometimes t shirts will run small or they'll run large. It, it just it depends. Yeah. So it just. That's why you got to try your shit on. Especially when they tell you that something is a women's cut t shirt. I've never understood that. It's mm -hmm. like, I can go and get a women's shirt and get my usual size and some come and, and then i'll have to get four sizes bigger for these women's cut like t-shirts like if i get like it's a, because they're trying to go like cup your breasts and stuff and i'm like look my boobs don't need your help just i'm just going to buy a man's shirt because i can fill it out i don't need you trying to help me out <laughs> it's these um it's 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 like the graphic t-shirts the slogan like this t-shirts like um like you buy um like through youtubers or you buy through like 
razzle or zazzle or whatever it is online, mm-hmm. for some reason their women's t-shirts run super tiny. And they curve in like they're, like they're trying to help you out. I don't need that kind of help. Just give me a fucking t-shirt. I mean, I actually, in many respects, like a women's cut shirt, but I don't understand why they're like four sizes smaller than they should. So, When I was younger, I preferred men's jeans um, because I am short and women's jeans aren't sold that way. I can get the size and the length in men's jeans, but you can't in women's. You have petite, you have long. I'm not either. I'm kind of in between. Petite is a little too short and long is way too long. So I'm stuck. Yeah, I can see that. So um, anyway, so sometimes when it comes to suspension of disbelief, you can have a real, if it's something bit, your suspension of disbelief can die on anything the author is making a big and whether that's the foundational premise of their story the hook which is the case of this person i was trying to help or it or it's something the character's making a big deal about you know they're defending they're defending people's right to have plus size clothing and then they're talking about a size 10 and 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 because it was a big deal because it was trying to show it was trying to show character development and it was really critical for the character to be making this choice it it really just stuck a really sour note, and then you're like, okay, and I couldn't couldn't get past it. So anyway, so it's I'm a, talking. When you shine a spotlight on something, you need to get it right. Yeah, I mean, don't shine a spot. That's why I tell people don't shine a spotlight on something you're not comf- confident about. Um, so um, but anyway, so this person they really wanted to just they wanted this plot device that they were using to make their story happen it more i think more than their end game they wanted to use that plot device that was their goal and they what they wanted and which i didn't know when they asked me for help was they wanted validation that that plot device was going to work but ultimately i wasn't going to say yeah it'll work so what i just said was i think this is why i don't get those questions because they know i won't be nice about it well i'm not mean but i would be like no honey that won't work Whereas well, I just said, I said I, for me, I can't, I can't get past the suspension just belief. But you should always write what you want to write. It's not mean to say something won't work. Mean would be, oh, this really fucking sucks. I can't believe you thought of it. That would be mean. Well, I told you all that example of uh, I've told you all before of like there was somebody asked in a writers group if it would be improbable, improbable. Was the, I think the word they at yes that somebody is recruiting scientists for a laboratory, and they just happened to recruit six scientists who happened coincidentally, through no design, to all be women, that all the women happened to be lesbians, and that they all paired up into three couples eventually. And I said it's not just improbable; it's impossible. My answer was no, that couldn't happen. <clears throat> Not that would have to. That is I mean, by you design. can actively recruit three lesbian couples, <laughs> right? There's no way. This, this honestly, there's no way if you're recruiting six scientists that you get six women without it being intense, especially in the field that they were talking about. There's that even that bit doesn't happen, and the odds of them all being lesbians and lesbians who like each other enough to happen to pair up just coincidentally. I was like, there's just way too many coincidences here to pass the sniff test. It's just, Suspension of disbelief is out the door. I mean, I got yelled at for telling them not to do it. I said, I didn't tell them not to do it. They didn't say, should I do this? They said, is this improbable? I answered the fucking question. Yeah, it does happen in Slashfic all the time. It's still not probable. I have a, actually, I have a note 
on Sentinels of Atlantis that said, I made everybody gay because it amused me. Not because it was reality. <laughs> I literally put it in my author note. Because the likelihood of all those pairings being, it's just, it's, it's not probable. But I think you need to own it if you're going to do it. Right. And, but the thing is also that um, when it comes to um, when that it comes to the worst. when it comes to people like if if you're recruiting six scientists and somebody wound up with six male scientists, I wouldn't blink at it. If they had all wound up being gay, I would find that to be ridiculous. It wouldn't pass the probability test for me anymore for six gay men than it would for six gay women. I thought, so, unless it was specifically said at the beginning of the thing that they searched for and hired six gay men. Right. And they'd be like, why'd you do that? What are you up to? Yeah, why would they do that? It feels very but suspicious. I'm going to be suspicious the whole fucking story. Why'd they do that? What are they doing? Is there an experiment? <laughs> and then it never it never amounts to anything. It just is a, it's just for them a fun detail in the background. And it feels like a red herring. It's a focus I on mean, this. In the Vanguard, I have taken two the two primary slash ships in Stargate smashed them together. <laughs> but come on. <laughs> I know what I'm doing. I know. I know what I'm doing. Right. But thanks Tim. Um, and you're welcome lady holder. I'm not even being mean to Daniel Jackson. Somebody else is, but it's not me. Um, but uh, I know what I'm doing. I know it's kind of weird. I know that, realistically speaking, none of the characters that I'm slashing together had a gay relationship on the shows, unless you guys got different versions of the shows. And like I told you years ago on Live Journal, if you've got a version of Stargate Atlantis where John and Rodney get it on, I expect to get a digital copy in my email shortly. Just saying. Right, but we're not talking about, but this isn't about the probabilities of two two characters in canon being gay because otherwise if you can't get past that improbability you're never going to get into any... fan fiction to begin with right but <laughs> the idea that you would have six random characters random people that they would you know that you've randomly recruited based upon qualifications and they're all the they're same all gender gay. and they're all the all gay and that they happen to pair up conveniently in ways they happen to be interested in each other in convenient couples that for starters, which is not realistic because there will be one of them who was more attractive than all the others and they'd all want him. Right. So it just, it, and the thing is, I mean, somebody mentioned that this kind of thing happens all the time with, with uh, male, with male pairings, but it's not probable with them either. It's ridiculous. It, it starts to feel like, why is, why, why is this is so it? gay? Oh yeah. She had the author note. <laughs> Because the abuse well, her. No. <laughs> but the thing is, in a in Sentinel, you mentioned specifically Sentinels Atlantis. Right. In a military context with Sentinels and Guides, it actually makes sense to be there be more. Yeah. Um, since the military is predominantly has more men, it makes sense to me that you'd have a, a skew a skew towards um, gay male pairings. Um, I will say that I, the only flag I ever got about Sentinels of Atlantis in my pairings was oddly Ann Teldy and Allison Porter. Um, they, I was told that that would be an opportunity for me to create two more het couples for my series. And I wrote back and said, if I have an OTP out in Stargate outside of Rodney and John, it is Ann and Allison and you need to shut your pie hole. Actually, considering that, considering that, um, 
lesbian couples are like the most underrepresented. You know, yelling about represent- representation for het couples is just kind of ridiculous. And there's two, three, four. There are four het couples in that series. And there's probably there's a, het, there's... Couples be- het couples behind the scenes that we don't even, you know, know about. Well, there's Daniel and, well, not behind the scenes, on screen you've got Daniel and... Um, and Carter, Carter, and you've got Miko and David eventually, and you've got uh, Simon and, and Elizabeth, uh, Elizabeth and Laura um, and Ronan, Ford, Ronan and um, Taylor. Taylor, and um, there are a lot of het couples in Sentinels of Atlantis. There's, there's a, one lesbian couple. There's what's his name, um, Cameron Mitchell and Mala, Mivala, and then there's Evan and who's Evan with? Keller. Keller. So you actually, I actually, I'm sorry. I actually think the het couples outnumber the gay couples. They might. They might. Now that I'm rattling them off. But you've got but, one lesbian couple. And I got grief about it. Now I realize that female slash in fandom is vastly underrepresented. Um, but this person focused on them and asked why I didn't put them in separate relationships with men. So then I turned around and wrote a really, um, I, I wrote a lesbian sex scene for Ties That Bind with them, with them as a couple um, because of that email because it pissed me off. But yeah, I think the most underrepresented um, type of pairing is, les- is a les- lesbian couple so that anybody giving you grief about, you know, when you pair off two women, you lose the opportunity for head couples. It's like, shut up. It's it's yeah, it's gross. It's just gross. But then you know we have these these women in fandom, and it is women. It's women in fandom who are in who will readily admit they're married to men, have sex with their husband, then turn around and say that het sex in fandom is disgusting, and they only read slash. Why don't you just come out and admit that you're fetishizing gay men and get it over with? Well, and why are they so grossed out by the sex that they have? Right, I I actually really enjoy reading really good lesbian sex. Please note my qualifiers on that. Really good lesbian sex. So much of it isn't. I, I have to say, it's some of the worst erotica I've ever read. Is is lesbian erotica? It's like I don't know where we went so wrong as a group. <laughs> no, no, I I can't think. And never in my life have I been the best. <coughs> We had high heels on. Can we please take those off? You know what it is? I'm going to tell you what it is. A lot of lesbian erotica is written by men. Or for men. Or for men. And Slash is not only majority, majorly, mostly written by women, it's written for women. <laughs> right. And so a lot of them are not writing. I mean, we need some Slash writers out there on the, the, on the lesbian erotica front because, good God. It's. I mean, I, I there have been times I picked up. I've picked up like femme slash pairings, and I actually, don't, I just kind of I get to get the sex part, and I'm like, oh no, what are we? What are we doing here? It's often not great um, because, because like I said, the, especially the professional stuff is written for men. Yeah. Well, I've been thinking about writing a, Ken, a short Ken Heron story. Ken Heron. That's why that's wrong. <laughs> Talk about getting my consonants wrong. <laughs> Karen Hen story. Huh. Um, where, uh, they get a wish baby, um, mm. um, and having, a like starting it with a smoking hot sex scene. Cause I mean, I just, the issue is I often don't run into two 
women that I want to write is the issue. But I like them. They're not my favorite. That my favorite pair in I'm one, obviously, but I do like them, so I could definitely go that. And you made me want. They need a baby. It's my headcanon that they get a baby. It's just their baby wasn't ready. So I kind of feel like Faye babies come the same way other babies do, exactly when they want to. Exactly when they're ready. So yeah, you made me want to want to want to write that. I thought, well, you know, there's there's a friend who said you need to write a a femme slash sex scene, and I was like, yes, I do need to do that. You can write it, and I'll link it as a companion story. That way, I don't have to write it. (laughs) Oh, okay. I could, I could totally do that, and that could because use your fa- so well, yeah, you could use my world building. Because, use your fabels because um, someone asked me if I if I was going to write them getting a wish baby because I mentioned them in the thing, and I really didn't intend on it. I don't intend to write any more wish babies. That was just like a fill for a pro for a prompt for my for my count for my bingo card. So if you did that, it would make people happy, <laughs> and I will link it. I shall do that because I I have I have I have agendas. Um, sometimes you like a little mystery. I'm working on another wish baby story where it's more inscrutable. I'm actually going to put a teeny tiny Easter egg in to explain the wish baby. It's going to be so microscopic, and I'll see if um, <laughs> anybody picks up on it. God damn it, Abigail! <laughs> It'll be I fully no. It'll be fully explained if anybody picks up on what I on this little tiny clue. It'll be a teeny tiniest clue. <clears throat> um, so nurturing, nurturing your writer. So when somebody, one of the ways that I think nurture writers get nurtured is working with other writers, talking about your ideas, and um, and sometimes I do think sharing your work is part of nurturing yourself as a writer, but you have to be very selective who you work with when before if you're not ready to share it with everybody. Because sharing it with the public is really different than sharing it with another person. And sometimes actually sharing it with that one individual, that first person to read it, can be harder than sharing it, it putting it on AO3. Open you up. Yeah. Because you're you're initiating um, a more intimate process with this person. You're giving them your work. You've given them a place where they can respond, um, whether it be an email or message or whatever, um, in a fashion that's not public. And we've all had really terrible beta experiences one way or another. And, th- and that plays into it. When you open up your process to somebody, like as an alpha reader or a beta reader, your, your writing is very intimate. And when you open yourself, yourself up to an individual that you may not know well, it can be hard. It should be hard. It's, it's a step. It's a step forward in your self-actualization as a writer. Because if you're heading towards a professional arena, it only gets worse. Because my worst beta experience was 10 times better than my worst editing experience. Professional edits are interesting. My edits, I think I got, my edits weren't bad. I still, like, was traumatized by, I felt like I was traumatized by every correction. (laughs) Which was ridiculous, because I knew it was going to (laughs) happen. But, like... they were pretty tame to what I've seen some other people go through Um, and in part that's because I am an editor so 
I beat the crap out of those stories before I sent them in, but that also set me up the expectation that I didn't want there to be any problems. And of course there were still problems, but somebody once described the beta process as being, you know, scrub the wire brush, um, which I, in my head is like a silkwood shower is the way I think of that. Um, but, and to me, that was um, a lot what the process is like, because there's something, there's something so dispassionate about a professional edit that makes everything because <laughs> it's not it's not friendly it's um fix this 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 and this you know and it's like it's very clinical this could be misread it's confusing you know or you know this is going to make your audience laugh instead of literally was in my one of my comments i think this is going to make the audience laugh rather than them think it's sexy and it's like Oh my god, which means of course my editor laughed over something that was supposed to be hot. And was, <laughs> Lord have mercy. Um whoops. But we've but all been there. All, we've all done it, you know. Yeah, but it's all delivered so dispassionately that it's just it does feel very clinical and like someone just kind of ran you over with a decontamination shower and you're left a little raw afterwards. That's why the decontamination chart is a good analogy because you're left a little raw afterwards. Whereas beta usually isn't like that. Um, yeah, there's I have, I have but... never cried over a beta, but I have cried over an edit. <laughs> yeah, it's rough. It's rough stuff. So, because um, sure. it is impersonal, and I think that's the that, that's the root of it. Writing is yeah. very personal, but prepping prepping for publication is not because you're prepping a product. Yeah, and the minute they start interacting with it as a product is when it starts to feel, and it starts to feel very dispassionate, and um, it's not a bad thing. It's just it's just rough. So, um, but when you're sharing that work, your word baby, with somebody the first time, whether it's your very, or it's the first thing you've written in a new fandom or a new genre, or you're trying out a new trope or whatever it is you're doing that's especially something that's because often even authors who have been writing for a long time when they do something experimental they will go to their writing that their their core group the people they trust and say look at this thing that i've done tell me what you think and that is often this is part of i think nurturing yourself as a writer this is part of growing um is is doing that because it, it is it is live it is being in, in that discomfort of exposing yourself and saying here's this thing that i kind of you know ripped out from inside of me what do you think of it and of course you want them to love it but you're also prepared for them to hate it and it's just it's all this kind of maelstrom of emotions that you sometimes don't know what to do with except go and get some chips and <laughs> um and in some people's cases, a box of wine. Yeah, in some cases, a box of wine. I never had boxed wine on purpose. <laughs> no, me neither. But I will say, having worked in several different Italian restaurants, if you've ever gotten the house wine at an Italian restaurant, and it came to you already in a glass, you got wine out of a box. Yeah, probably. Yeah. But I've, I've never ordered the house wine. No, never ordered the house wine. Unless you light wine out of a box. Which, I mean, box wines have improved since, like, the first time I somebody gave me some of a box wine was probably in the early 90s. Not mm -hmm. great. Not great. Um, and it was a White Zinfandel, which to me is, like, the bottom of the barrel of wines, in my opinion. If you like a White Zin, I'm not judging you. I just can't stand it. Um, 
I mean, you might as well just go get a bottle of Boone's Farm and get it over with. So, but um, I am judging you. <laughs> and I am someone who, in my youth, could bolt a bottle of Boone's Farm. So I'm judging myself too. <laughs> now, see, I my favorite wine is a Shiraz or a Syrah. Um, so I like a fairly robust red wine. So that should explain why I don't like white Zin. I think it's deeply unfortunate. Um, Capri Sun. It's an adult Capri Sun. Yeah. <laughs> but no, these boxes are way too big. You'd have to just, these box wines are, it's a lot. It's like two or three bottles in a box, if not it's more. like a Yeah, it's like several liters. So. Let you, you hard you check your be, box. I'm just kidding. You, you wouldn't be <laughs> taking that box. You wouldn't be carrying it around like a Capri Sun. You would be like hovering over that box with a straw. Um, <laughs> a long straw. <laughs> Or have, having that box sitting on your lap with a big old straw. You'd look like an alcoholic. Why, do you have, do you have four <laughs> Just have this wine? big giant box sitting in your lap with a straw. Do you, have, do you have four liters of wine in your lap and a giant straw? I'm, I'm having a night. Leave me alone. I just got my edits back, okay? <laughs> I'm having but, a night. I'm having a year. <laughs> if, you, if you like box wine and if you like white zin, I actually am not judging you. Go forth and get that straw. <laughs> Drink that pink stuff. I don't care. But um, but but you know, sometimes with, with these, you, you have all of these. Like sometimes these, I've had more intense emotions about sharing my writing with people than I do about a, a, a lot of other things in my life. The things you would think would engender really intense emotions. A lot of times, writing is it's more. It's like there's like anxiety and and there's it's it's like I want there's like this anticipation and I want them to like it, but I also want she to know the truth. Is, is it actually any good? And you know, five liters. Look at me. Hers is just three liters. But I have heard that overall, that box wines are, um, have improved a lot since I tried them, but whatever. We'll move on for the box wines. Um, I, I'm going to confess something and it's going to mark me really Southern. I would rather have a beer than a glass of wine. <laughs> Practically any day. I, I, have a beer. I am a bigger beer snob than I am a wine snob. So if it's a really, if it's the kind of beer I like, I'd rather have beer than wine, but there's like a very, very small number of beers that I actually like. So in general, wine's a better bet for me. I tend to buy little bottles of wine for cooking, but I don't drink it. I like, um, just, there's a, a small range of dark beers that I like, but I don't like any pale beers. There's no light beer I've ever tried that I like. Which is what most people have. You go to places and they'll have like, you know, pale ale or, you know, IPA. And it's like, no, thank you. No, thank you. Not interested. Or God help me. Here's a Bud Light. It's like, oh my God. No, it's just one of those. There's a microbrewery down from my house and you can get a beer sampler. And it goes from like a really pale beer to an ale you could practically chew. <laughs> it's all well, like tray. I don't like them that dark, but I, I mean, a beer flight is a good bet for me, but I just always, when I get a flight, I always get the darker beer. Stouts, Martins, that kind of thing is, I don't like. I like a stout, but yeah, I prefer a beer every day over a, a glass of wine, to be honest. But I, but I will but cook I with wine. Vicky says, I prefer my beverages with an umbrella. I actually am with you. If I, I would prefer cocktails over, over, over beer or wine, I infinitely prefer a hard liquor. I mean, if I had my choice, it would probably be a rum and coke. Um, otherwise, I wouldn't mind a screwdriver. But if, if, if it's between beer and wine, it's, it's 
it's going to be beer. Yeah. I mean, I've been to some, there were some really good micro, microbreweries that I went to in, in, in California and they had some beers that I really liked and that, that I would definitely take over wine. But I mean, um, also you have to think about diabetes when you were drinking, um, because the worst fruit you can drink, eat for diabetes is grapes. So the worst thing terrible. you can drink as far as alcohol goes is wine because it's got a lot of sugar in it and it will push me through the roof. Beer has a lot of carbs, but it doesn't have a lot of sugar and or any sugar most of the time so that makes a big difference <clears throat> but i'll kick somebody's ass for a for a screwdriver right about now or a fuzzy navel i would love a fuzzy navel i like mm. tequila sunrises they're kind of sticky sweet but i don't care so off the alcohol and back to <laughs> okay if you insist um one one of the things i see beyond the um the trope rut that you see people getting into and i've fallen into that trap too i have a whole collection of time travel stories that are half written because i couldn't figure out where i wanted to go and i kept trying over and over and over again until i found one that worked to tell the story i wanted to tell and that's part of your process that's part of my process anyway um but the other thing is the inability to step completely out of canon and you have to be able to step completely out of canon events keep your characters keep the characterization <coughs> and have the ability to move your character in a direction that is divorced from canon this is a skill you need to learn because being like enamored to the, with canon to the point where you're just retelling it over and over and over again i'm looking at you harry potter um is really agonizingly awful and frustrating and difficult and if you get there and you can't get out it's bad it's super bad. Come back from the dark side. Their cookies aren't that great. <laughs> Just saying. I'm muted. There was a um, I love. There's, there's a ton of tsunami stories um, in um, nine one, and it's one of my favorite tropes to read about. To read to read something post tsunami or during the tsunami stories. I like um, them too. There I are more. There are more lawsuit stories than there are tsunami stories. I think it's deeply unfortunate because there's only, they're only like an episode apart. But whatever, I don't, I don't, I can't direct fandom, which is too bad. So I totally would use my mind control powers for for, for evil if I could. Yeah, me um, too. I would not be. I would definitely be a villain. I know me. You wouldn't, you wouldn't want me to have mind control powers. It'd be bad. <laughs> anyway. So there's one story I stumbled across a long time ago. That I'm like, oh, a nice, nice, fairly long for that fandom, which for that fandom, anything over 5K is fairly long. Um, tsunami story. And like three quarters of it was just retelling the episode. Like almost unaltered. I kept looking for anything that didn't feel like it was straight from the episode. And I couldn't find it. I'm like, what is the point of this? What are we doing here? And it was just such a, it's such a letdown to be that immersed in canon. Um, that's not why I read fan fiction. You know, if I want to, want to, want canon i'll go watch the show there are so many different things you could do with a tsunami that are oh. it, it, i think it's really underexplored in, in fandom really i have probably more things plotted and um and actually i think the tsunami comes up in um um almost every story i write that occurs i mean i have a ton of stories that occur in season three so the, it, it always comes up um in um it's in my plot for Believer, which somebody wrote me trying to guess what Buck's magical affinity was in Believer. 
I felt like they spoiled the fuck out of that already. It's in the title. But, so this is a big spoiler for the for what's going to happen in Believer, but he is a spark. And one of the things I, my head canon about sparks in, the, in that kind of world building is that self-doubt can be crippling. Well, Buck gets past his self-doubt, and he is still on the pier when the tsunami hits. Not be, through different circumstances, but he's there. And he believes he can stop the wave. And he does. It nearly kills him, but he, he does stop it. He lets the, he believes he can stop he stops the water but lets the kinetic energy pass. Um so he basically prevents the tsunami, which I don't think I've seen anybody write that. They probably somebody probably looking has. forward to it. But um Styles shows up in um the way I've got the plot it Styles shows up and uh, he realizes what Buck is doing and he throws his ability behind helping him stop it as well. Um but it nearly burns um Buck out because he's not experienced enough for what he's trying to do. But he really believes, he's told, you know, his his experience at that point is they're trying not to, he's a little under, under-trained, but they're trying not to cripple him with doubt. So they basically have just given him the speech, if you believe you can do it, you can do it. <laughs> so, so I'm going to stop a 400 mile per hour wave. Watch I'm gonna me. Stop this, I'm just going to stop this tsunami, which requires, requires him channeling so much magic that it nearly kills him. So I was like, I'm going to explore the tsunami in a different way. So yeah. Um, and this is your time travel story, right? No, no, no. This is Believer, which was the oh. Teen Wolf, the Teen Wolf fusion that I wrote in the summer. Oh, okay, okay. Where Eddie is a werewolf and Chris has wings and Buck is. Oh yeah, yeah. Buck is Buck. Is Buck. Buck is Buck. Wings. Like 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 that kid couldn't be cuter. You just gotta stick wings on him. Right. What's the title of your November one? Fearless. Oh, I knew it was one word. I, that, that's what that's what, what was throwing me off. I know the plot of your November one. We talked about it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but the tsunami will come up. I heard my own feelings talking about it. <laughs> yeah. Can um, Christopher fly? Yes, he, he will be able to eventually fly. But in the short term, the wings will help him be able to not need his crutches because they'll stabilize him to be able to walk. to act like a, an aid once he gets used to having them. So the first time he doesn't have his, have his crutches, the way I have it in my notes, is the first time he has his crutches, he's not using his crutches that he trips, his wings just kind of kick in and keep him from falling. That's charming. So, but anyway. th- there are lots of things that you can explore, but people get stuck in that rut. E- either it's the tropes that are really popular, it's the pairings that are really popular, even if they don't like the pairing particularly, or they get bored with the pairing. Um, or they they're, they're just so rooted in canon that, that they can't get past it. And you gotta climb on top of Cannon and show it's ask show his boss. who's your daddy. <laughs> For instance, I'll go up to Harry Potter Cannon's ass <laughs> on the regular because it it's not very satisfying as an adult. I was talking to somebody about an idea they had and, and I felt like they were kind of like missing an opportunity and I kind of like was like kind of poking them about what happened? Do you see that if you did this, you know, I don't think this character would keep doing this. That doesn't it make more sense? To, what do you think that they would react this way instead? Because they wanted to make a change, kind of in the character's near to canon backstory, like right before canon mm-hmm. starts, the on-screen canon starts. And they said, "But, but if I do that, then nothing in canon happens the same." 
I was like, well, yeah. That, that's the point. <laughs> exactly. Why do you want to preserve? I mean, sometimes you write in canon divergence, and so yes, you're preserving canon, but everything after that point is is up for it. I mean, there are some immutable things, like these natural disasters are still going to happen that, you know, if you're writing it like a 911, you may or may not choose to keep COVID in place because, you know, the, they did acknowledge in season four, the panorama was a big deal. Um, there's, there are whole plot lines that deal with, you know, actually their opening plot line, um, the two, the two episode arc at the beginning dealt heavily with the dynamic. So, you know, if you choose to do something that diverges from that and you want to use any of those canon elements you're, and you don't want to use COVID, you're going to have to make, figure out how to make those elements still work. Like Karen and I talked once about, um, I was thinking about writing a story in season two of 911 Lone Star because I like Tommy better than Michelle. And if you don't watch Lone Star, that's not going to make a lot of sense. Tommy is played by Gina Torres. She came in in season two, replacing the paramedic captain. But her entree into the show was all about COVID. If COVID hadn't happened, she never would have been on the show. So in order, if you don't want COVID to th be a thing, we had Kira and I talk through a way of reconstructing events in Tommy's life that would have brought her back to be a paramedic because she was staying home with her girls and helping her husband at his restaurant. And if the restaurant hadn't been closed due to COVID, she wouldn't have been back at work. So there was a series of events that were had to be worked out if I were to write that story. So anyway, um, but being stuck, being stuck, if you're stuck in canon, you'd have been like, I'm just stuck with COVID because, you know, I, I, that's just what was going on. But you're not. You can, you can change things. You can figure out another reason why Tommy would be there. You can just hand wave it and say it didn't happen. Because actually a lot of readers are very anxious for it not to be in the story. They're like, okay, good. COVID is not a thing. Yeah, I need a break from that. Honestly. Um, and if you need a break from it, so so does your reader. And there are lots of ways to bring that character back into the career. In that maybe she just literally didn't want to stay home. Maybe she did it for like six months or a year. Like, you know what? I'm not actually cut out for this. This isn't this isn't it. And she took her butt back to work. <laughs> because it could be that simple. Her husband's restaurant could have closed for other reasons. Or he could be sick. Or they could have had some financial strain that meant that she needed to work. There's all kinds of ways to bring her in that allow you to separate from canon. And that's just like one minor thing. But sometimes people get so in, so stuck in, in, in canon that they can't develop their idea because they're too focused on, well, this is what was going on in canon. And I see sometimes in some writer groups where they, like there was a comment made in this one writer group the other day about something in 911. And it, I don't think the person even realized that there was like some insidious gatekeeping going on, but they were telling people what they should be focusing on in the episode, what they should be focusing on about a character. And it was like, why is that you what they should, should be focusing on? Like just on? suck my dick. Why don't oh. you, you you focus on it if you want to, but I don't have to focus on that. I can focus on whatever I want to focus on. And people can get very stuck and get, get very paralyzed between fandom gatekeeping and um, we talked earlier about choice paralysis where there's like too many decisions to make and maybe they don't know what they're drawn to or what they really want to do. Maybe people sometimes know they're drawn to a character, but they don't really know where they want to go with that. And so sometimes doing some character study stories 
or even writing some meta is a good way to get started and figure out where you want to be. But you figure out where you want to be, what lane you want to be in by writing, not by looking at what's popular or what readers. Because that's never going to nurture the writer in you to be like basically analyzing the market is what you're doing. And that's just a, that's an ugly road to go down on. Um, and it can be really demoralizing, honestly. It's better to find inspiration in other writers than to, to compare yourself to other writers. And I don't mean wholesale steal their plot. You can be inspired by somebody without taking their plot. Yeah, compare, not confiscate. <laughs> That's great. But <clears throat> you can see somebody doing a concept like, you know, uh, Wish Babies or um, Cabbage Patch Babies or, uh, you know, just see how they're, um, how they're finagling the time travel or, uh, which can be really difficult in like contemporary fandoms, shoehorning some time travel in there, which is how I stumbled upon, uh, magical realism and playing with those concepts. So, <coughs> but you gotta, that, you, that's inspiration. It's not confiscation and just don't do it don't because it's not flattering to have someone lift your plot and readers are going to notice yeah they will some readers won't give a shit but they're assholes and we don't like them a writer that asks a reader what they should do next is a writer who is not confident in their ability as a writer and they are also honestly a pantser because a and plotter already knows what they're going to do next and they're seeking uh, it, i actually think sometimes they're seeking validation through interaction mm, i buy it uh, which i wouldn't pay much I for just, it though <laughs> it's it's incredibly toxic to get into that mindset you just got to be so careful um because they'll because they'll because you, you'll end up riding yourself into a hole and then you and then your readers will get bitchy with you because now they've invested all this time and thought into your work and you failed now what do you do you leave a 300k work on fanfiction.net unfinished for two decades. That's what you do. That's what happens. And also, it can, with a new writer, it can kind of throw them off so heavily that they don't write again for years. And I think some writers can actually get kind of nipped in the bud when they're very young, either because of negative feedback or toxic relationships with other writers, or they stall out and they don't have anywhere else to go. And they don't know how to get out of it. And they don't know. And they're afraid to start over with something new. And that, then that one failure kind of ripples out through their, through their craft. Wow, Jace. Oh. Wow. Did they know you were 12? Some people are just assholes. So Jace commented that the beta had asked, said that, um, had asked if English was their second language. And that they knew that Jace was 12 at the time. Um, you know, that's just, that's just assholery. Yeah. That's, that's real ugly. I think that it was very brave of you to ask for beta at 12. Cause I would not, there's no way I would have done that at 12. I, no, I mean, yeah, I, had, I had, I had been writing in notebooks since I was 10 or 11 and they were awful. And then I switched to a typewriter and I, I wrote my little Harlequin novel and, and let, let, let my mom read it. But, but as my mom, so she was super proud of me. I, I wrote a whole book at 12. 
Which, which oddly which is... turned out to be too long for Harlequin Desire. It was 75k. <laughs> you overachiever. <laughs> I I also wrote my first romance novel when I was 12. Because I got my first computer when I was 12. I didn't get a typewriter. I got a computer. Um, and I learned to type. And there was just no stopping me from that point on. But I never let... I don't think I've ever let anybody read that. Because, you know, I was never really... I mean, I was very proud of myself and I was like really pleased, but I don't know. When I look back at that, I'm just, I've told you guys that that first novel I wrote, that the big trope was amnesia, which <laughs> I hate amnesia stories. So I don't know. I mean, something clearly was very different with me when I was 12. And I clearly thought somebody not having any idea who they were was sounded romantic, I guess. <laughs> it's actually kind of charming. Whatever. It was, it was, it was, it was horrible. Um, um, so yeah, it, it had all, it had all these horrible tropes in it, like all these cliches. It, it wasn't even the tropes, it was the problem, it was the cliche of it all. Um, but, you know, I still, I still wrote something when I was, when I was, when I was a kid. And I, but I can't imagine showing it to anybody. I can't imagine that. Not, so not that's then. some brave shit you did. I, there's, there's no way I could have done it. Um, I had that amnesia square on my trope bingo. And I was like, I was, I had two choices. Either I could avoid it to the very end or like write it, like write it out of the gate. And I wrote a Stargate one because they have a baked in amnesia trope with the, with the Ascension and the deascension because yeah. the ancients are assholes. And so it worked out because the, um, I read an amnesia story where it just, it just made me, if somebody misunderstood the side effects of a medication, the author misunderstood medication side effects. Okay. The side effect of a medication often that doctors will give you, and it's with the anesthesia and some opiates, particularly strong opiates, is they'll tell you that it can have short-term memory loss. You can also have this side effect with, um, like, Ambien for some people. And what yeah, that means yeah, is... Yeah, I could what, testify to that. <laughs> what that means is that for some amount of time after you take the medication, you may not remember what happened. So you might, like, when I took Ambien, I had some short-term memory loss, and what that side effect is is that i would not remember sometimes like doing stuff when i was taking ambient I, I would be i would be awake and i wouldn't remember and sometimes people um they've had anesthesia they don't remember the things that happen right after they wake up from anesthesia and that's the side effect of short-term memory loss well i guess the author read short-term memory loss as a side effect and what they thought that mean meant apparently was that for a while the character would forget who they were oh which that's not what that meant, <laughs> but it was just so it was so weird because all of a sudden this character gets this medication and all of a sudden they forget who they are and they forget everybody around them, mm. and everybody's talking them through it, helping them not panic. I'm like, that is not what short-term memory loss is. And uh, Ambien gave me auditory hallucinations, or it thinned the veil between the living and the dead. Take your pick. Um, it also made me eat in my sleep. I would get up and eat. Fortunately, I never tried to cook. I but I did eat more than one peanut butter sandwich. <laughs> I did my taxes on, which I had to read. You didn't send them, right? <laughs> no, no, no. But I woke up with I woke up in the morning, and there were piles of paper around me. It was like I had resorted all the paperwork for my taxes badly. I don't even know what file it was. I mean, they were in <coughs> piles that made no sense. I mean, they made sense to me who did it, but they didn't make sense to it and what i had done with my taxes was just um the other thing i did was i relocated a bunch of stuff from my kitchen to the bed i you never want to wake up with a wire whisk and not know why it's there it's like why is this wire whisk in my bed 
you know what? I'm just going to put it in the dishwasher. We'll just put it in the dishwasher. <laughs> Everything in the dishwasher. I don't know why I need stuff here. At least there were no knives. I'll, I'll, at least there's nothing sharp. But, Extra heat you know. cycle sanitation. Just, just, just all works. Just, just to work. But yeah, so sometimes um, I could deal with short amnesia stories depending upon what's going on in them. But that, that I, that's why I wrote this one story because I thought it would be... It was short. I thought it'd be cute. Somebody had recommended it to me. I'm like, but again, we go. This goes back to what we started at the very beginning about this failing suspension of disbelief test. Is my suspension of disbelief was in hysterics because that's not what that side effect means. Short-term memory loss does not mean you forget who you are. <laughs> it means you forget what was going on during X amount of time. You just have no recollection of it. So characters can interact. They can do things. They can go get pizza and not remember getting pizza or eat a bunch of food they don't remember eating. And that's short-term memory loss. Not, I'm sorry, who are you? <laughs> now, I also took a medication for insomnia um, that was not Ambien. And it's actually technically, I think, an antipsychotic. And it's also used to treat insomnia. Your mileage may vary. There's quite a few of them that, that are used like that. And um, I forget what it's called. If you say that, I'd probably, know, I'd probably say yes or no. But um, it, it doesn't really matter. But it caused severe short-term memory loss for me. Um, I would, uh, even when I wasn't, like, I would take it at night. And then I would be capable of functioning and stuff. And then I would forget where I was going. Um, and I really didn't realize how bad it was until I was going to the post office. And which was literally two miles from my house. And I got turned around and got lost. And I called my husband in tears and I said, I'm, I'm lost and I need you to help me get to the post office because I don't know. Mm -mm, I, I don't know where I am. And he may, it, he, he, it, it freaked him out. Maybe. Um, but he got me home and I didn't end up going to the post office. And after that, I stopped taking the, um, that particular medication. Cause it was just really. Oh, that's not, oh, autocorrect hats way with me. I think it was Abilify. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Those are the three most common. Seroquel, Abilify and Risperidol are the most common used to treat it. But oddly my new antidepressant, um, which is just fell out of my brain. The one that also treats fibro. Oh, um, Cymbalta. Cymbalta, yeah. It's working really well for my insomnia most of the time, except for like my hormone induced insomnia, which nothing helps. So, you know. Thank you, PMDD. Right? You're a terrible friend. Um, <laughs> PMDD is the worst. But uh, the Cymbalta is actually really helpful for um, the uh, depression, and it's really doing a great job on the, on, on the fibro. I'm not nearly as. Um, I haven't had a pain flare. I am getting a lot of muscle cramps, but that's not really, that's related to the fibro, but it's a separate matter altogether. Um, but uh, yeah, the Cymbalt is nice. I'm, I'm, I'm not mad at it. Yeah, Someone sent me an email talking about um, how um, she thought my casual discussion of depression was inappropriate. Like, I have been clinically depressed since my 20s. This is like my life. You know, one of my, I feel, feel like we should normalize discussion of mental health. I mean, if I can talk about stubbing my toe, I should be able to talk about depression. And the problem is, is people 
want to segregate it. They don't want to talk about mental health care. They want to make it kind of in this little bubble, like it's taboo to talk about it. Um, yeah, we do have to, we have to normalize the discussion of it. And well, she actually ended her email with saying, I wish you had some shame on this subject. Shame? Yeah. So that I wouldn't wow. talk about it, apparently. And I'm like, look, if, if you're in that generation where you think I should be ashamed of my psychiatric issues and my and the fact that I'm not neurotypical, you can go fuck yourself. Because hiding my depression was stupidly dangerous. It is. Hiding mental health issues incredibly unhealthy. It's incredibly unhealthy to to do that. And um, you know, I tend to write pretty easily, write therapy into stories because I've had a lot of therapy. And it is and I know how beneficial it can be. Um and I know how beneficial medication can be at the right times in your life when you need it, you know. Uh, and I don't think that we should be stigmatizing or making it um, like it needs a trigger warning that a character is treating their mental health issues. That's just bullshit. We shouldn't be treating, you know, um, torture and murder this in the same classification as we treat uh, mental health problems. That's just... I mean, I understand. I can understand warning people that there's going to be, dis you know, discussions of depression in a story or something like that. But you shouldn't have to, you know, make a big deal and, and, and segregate and put, put, you know, skip this section if you don't want to read about, you know, a character with a mental health issue. Because honestly, I write mostly procedurals, and those people all have mental health issues. A lot. Here's the thing. I'm all of them. the only thing I'm ashamed of is that like, tonight I got dinner from a place that sent all my food in one-use plastic containers. Yeah, that does suck. That is so now I think I have to use these plastic containers until they fall apart. <laughs> like, why are y'all so using plastic? I mean, when it comes to... The only thing I don't know what styrofoam either. So I, don't know what the, I don't know what the solution is, but... When it... When it comes, well, there's there's paper, there's biodegradable, like um, the Mexican place near me, they use this biodegradable paper. It's like some sort of yeah, yeah. My, paper material. Um, my, uh, my Chipotle uses those. Yeah, it's much it's much better. But there's also there's some places that use these. Um, they look like plastic, but they're not plastic. It's a it's a material. I think it's like made from corn, and it breaks down over time. Mm -hmm. Um, but they usually like label it. This is a compostable material. It's not plastic so that, you know, you can put it in the compost bin. But anyway, um, you know, the only thing I've ever had, it, it, <coughs> the only thing I ever have shame about when it comes to my history with mental health is the time I have let people who stigmatize it affect my decision about getting health care or affect me getting, taking medication. When I, need it. I had an aunt who very like, oh, you know, if you shouldn't need to take medication, you shouldn't need this. And she was always like wanting to ask about my mental health care. And then if I was honest with her about what I was doing, she would get all up in my grill about you shouldn't be seeing a therapist. You shouldn't be taking medication. You should just, you know, God, tell it, her to kiss my ass. Oh my God. You should just suck it up. And the fact that I let people like that when I was younger influence me is the only thing I have any regrets about. At all. I did what I had to do to get by. I got help when I needed it. And one of the big things that I dealt with in therapy early on was destigmatizing it in my own mind, the fact that I needed to get therapy. Because by, by the time I had gone to therapy for the first time, I had been through the wars, let me tell you. So I needed to be there. I still get therapy. I mean, I don't really feel like I need therapy like I did 10 years ago. But honestly, the panorama just means sometimes I just need to bitch. And 
get therapist on the video conference. <clears throat> Tell her all my feelings about being. I, I can. I, I can rant. We're gonna zoom minutes. this. We're gonna, we're gonna zoom this in a little bit. We're gonna zoom it. I'm gonna tell her all my feelings about people who wear their mask below their nose. I hate those people. I want to cuss them out. I told the thing because it is. It is an issue, and I recognize that it was negatively affecting my mental health. How close to feeling violent I would was getting every time I'd walk out in public. I, I would dread going store and running running errands, not because I didn't want to run errands, but because I'd be so furious every time I'd see somebody who would be wearing their mask below their nose. It would just, just make me so mad. And I needed to, I you know, so we talk about it. And she does, you know, there are all these, she's, she's up on all the new techniques for um, memory reprocessing and anxiety issues and all that kind of stuff. Um, we're doing tapping right now. So that's interesting. But anyway therapy it's a good thing and anybody who acts like you should have shame about getting whatever health help you need whether it's for some physical ailment or a mental ailment just fuck them with the biggest cactus you can find and there it's, are some you know big people cactus. feel like they can tell you anything on the internet right um it, it's it's low-key it, it is low-key awful just how entitled people are in general and then to reach out like Go find your email address to tell you that they wish you would not would stop talking about your clinic, your clinical depression on your podcast. <laughs> I'm like, bitch, this is my shit. I do what I want. And honestly, I hear more from people as much as occasionally you hear that voice. I hear more from people who are grateful that I am open on the podcast about mental health and that I'm open in my stories about mental health. Because... People need to know that it's okay to talk about those things. People need to know it's okay to talk about being depressed. Women need to know that it's okay. Well, not just women, but anybody who menstruates needs to know it's okay to talk about their fucking period. We should be able to talk about PMDD and things like that openly without it having to be a behind closed doors discussion. Whispered. Someone said <laughs> in the um, brouhaha that you should take over writing season five and I went, and it would be like the entire cast in therapy plus a few That's interesting calls. That's exactly what would happen. They would all be in therapy. <coughs> I don't. I don't. Have I written? I don't think I've ever written a nine one one story that didn't have therapy in it. Because they all need therapy. They have issues. They have issues. They have issues on top of issues. And the thing is, is anybody who works in that kind of environment is going to have those issues. You cannot see that kind of trauma day in and day out and not be affected by it. And if you are, your ass, if you're not impacted by the shit that they see, your ass definitely needs to be in therapy because you're probably a sociopath. Yeah. And you need better tools so you don't go off the rails and keep people in your basement. Because, <laughs> I mean, there's some things I'm very passionate about, um, being open and um, body positive about the issues that... Um, women and menstruating people face talk about it i'm very sex positive i don't like slut shaming i don't like the idea that just because somebody has multiple sex partners means there's something wrong with them i don't necessarily believe that the end goal for every person needs to be to be in a lockdown committed relationship you know and i've done a lot of um sex positive work in the past about sex education and you know that kind of thing so i get can get really bent about ignorant attitudes towards sex um and it kind of bothers me i feel like that there's kind of a pervasive fandom trope that is becoming fandom creep in 911 that to me is not very sex positive 
You mean the, um, the slut shaming? Yeah, yeah. It's it, it's sometimes it's really subtle, but it's sort of like, you know, like you'll see Buck talk about he doesn't want to go back to being that guy. That guy what? Who got laid? Or Eddie hasn't had sex in years. Look, y'all. Yeah. Look, I'm, I'm going to tell y'all something. That motherfucker gets laid whenever he wants to. You don't look like that and not get laid. The fact of the matter is, is that Eddie could get just as much ass as Buck did in first season if he walked into a bar. Oh, yeah. I mean, I actually, I, I have, um, like, two, it's weird, usually I, <coughs> I get one sex head cannon for a character and I kind of stay with it, but I kind of have two distinct blue ones for Eddie. One is sort of the hold him down and ride him hard kind of, you know? Which I appreciate. Yeah, and then the other is, I'm, I'm come to be kind of on board with the demisexual thing for Eddie as well, but that doesn't mean he's never been laid or that he's only ever been with Shannon. And it also doesn't mean he's not having sex. Because it's just like saying that all asexuals are celibate. That's not accurate. Just because he prefers an emotional connection with somebody to have sex with them doesn't mean he's not fuck somebody he didn't even know. It's happened. I mean, physical release and emotional satisfaction are honestly two different things. So now he, it isn't like his dick's broken. I mean, I have read it... Pre presented convincingly that Eddie's had very few sexual partners and he wasn't even aware he was demisexual. I've read yeah. that convincingly. Mm -hmm. I've also read it unconvincingly where it was like he's practically a monk. Um, that he just, but he's just waiting for Buck to come along and, and, and fix him with his magic dick. Well, that probably works. Um, <laughs> but by the same token, uh, you know, Buck is often written about, like, you know, that it's wrong when he has a sex with somebody he's not in a relationship with, or, you know, it, he's really ashamed of his sexual past. And I really hate that because the, but the problem with Buck's behavior was always that he was doing it on the job. And the other issue is that if he was trying to overcome an issue, it was that he was relationship avoidant and that is not the same thing those two things correcting those things does not mean not having sex so there's this kind of anti-sex thing it's like it's only okay to have sex if you're in a committed relationship with somebody and i'm like which where is gross where are the puritans coming from and could they yeah please go back he got to cured by the love of a good woman yeah <sighs> i had to change my plan for the buck the the buck sex yoda thing why um well I missed a critical. Now I'm sad. Week. No, I, I, it's <laughs> okay. actually, it actually got bigger. Okay. Because okay. I oh, missed, yay. Yay. I missed a critical rule in the 911. Because I have this 911 bingo, right? And they said, they said you could do a multi chapter work and each chapter could be a different prompt, right? So, like, some of, some of the prompts are compatible with one another, especially the sex prompts, but you can only do one prompt per chapter. And I thought, well, that's what I'm going to do. So I'm like, roll up all the prompts that are compatible and write a novella or a novel that, you know, is take a storyline that I've wanted to write and include these sex prompts in, as well as some of the, the dialogue prompts. Because there's, there's this combination of sex prompts and dialogue prompts that would be pretty easy to incorporate one per chapter and roll out, like, you know, 15 of the bingo prompts into one story. That was my plan. Okay. Come to find out that only works, that it's disallowed unless you post each chapter individually. What? Yeah. 
I have to post a link to each separate chapter. And if I post it all as if I post it all at once and I just missed this little rule, it was there all along. I just missed it. That if I post it all at once, it only counts as for, against one prompt. And you know me, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna spend 15 days posting a novel to roll out 15 prompts. No. So I decided to roll those prompts into the sexiotes instead because that's it's always going to be short episode. I just, I, I just like the rule. I just, like I said, it's not, it's not the, I think it's a dumb rule, but I, you know, I'm, I'm the one that missed it. It was there all along that I, it was just this little thing. I saw the part about how each chapter could be its own prompt. I saw that part. I missed the part about how, how each chapter had to be posted and linked separately. Mm. Which means I couldn't even post. I don't want my parts. face to get stuck like this. I, I need to stop making this face. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I, I couldn't even post one, um, like, multiple. Usually I post multiple chapters into a single post. I couldn't even do that, right? It would disqualify it. So, so I kind of threw that whole, I plotted this novel and I kind of had to throw that out because I, I have no reason to roll those prompts into that story. So, um. Yeah, I think we said probably. in the chat room that I hate that Buck was still invested in making Abby ha happy and went about promising to save her fiance. I think the promise was a mistake, but you can't turn love off. And I do believe that Buck loved her. Yeah. And I think, I think the reason she ghosted him is he was her backup plan. If she I got agree. tired if she got tired of Europe or she couldn't out what she was seeing her she saw her life going in a new direction but she was scared and if her life didn't work out she wanted a backup plan of what she had back home and that's why she wasn't telling him she wasn't coming back he was her backup plan and she finally she was she it was finally over when he called it quits not when she did and she owed him a fucking apology so um i agree with that too but you can't like you, you just you just can't turn it off and i do think but I do think even I think Buck is the kind of person that even if it hadn't been Abby begging him to save her fiance, if it had just been some stranger, Buck's a soft-hearted kind of guy that would try to make that promise, even if he knows he shouldn't. He probably. I don't would. think that rescue would have gone any different. I think they would have still tried to save them both. Yeah, it just it felt it did feel. If she, I think he was wound tight because Abby was there, it put him in an emotionally compromised situation, and it put him in a in an argument with Bobby. That shouldn't have happened. Um, thanks, Tim. Um, I, I I agree with you, Bri. I just I feel like I just don't feel like the rescue fundamentally would have gone different if it had been a different person there. I mean, clearly she was emotionally all up in his head, and and that's an issue because he he's still affected by her, uh, which sucks. Um, I will get to the train derailment in Fearless. That's in my plot, and that's gonna go different. If he's still going to save the fiance, but he's when she, you know, asks him to promise to save him, he's going to refuse flat out. Nope, not doing it. It's an incredibly toxic moment for her because she should know better. Yeah, she should know better. She should know better than to try to put a first responder in that situation. It's one thing for her to say, my fiance's in there. That already puts him in a compromised position. But to ask him to ask anything of him is just bullshit. Honestly, I don't even think he should have been talking to her. I agree. I absolutely agree. I think, you know, and um, I think in Fearless, um, he's going to get Bobby to run interference. Don't let me talk to her. I can't, I can't go do this rescue and have her in my head. And that's Bobby's job. Yeah. You can't be here. You can't be talking to these people. They have a job to do. 
I don't care what your connection to him is. Because if she had been anybody else, she wouldn't have been allowed to be on that scene. She would have already been removed with everybody else. She's obviously yeah, using she... her connections to stay on the scene. And that's inappropriate. So Bobby should have had her ass hauled off the scene when, the moment he arrived. Okay, she needs to go. She need, you just get All the civilians should have been gone. Yeah. So I, I understand. I mean, I think that there are, um, I think in terms of the Abby thing, I think that you'll find when we get to the, when I get to start rolling out the Buck Sexiota thing, I think that you'll, you'll enjoy that because he basically only briefly gets involved with her because um, his Sexiota does not approve of Abby. So um, they sort of have sex eventually, but the, the relationship doesn't ever get off the ground because um, he's not willing to get, he, he's healthier. He doesn't get into that kind of codependent thing because Abby really used him as kind of, I think a crutch mm, um, I agree. to get, to get her through a very difficult emotionally time, emotionally time, very difficult emotional time. And then she just kept him as a backup plan for if her, her vision for her future didn't work out. I think that she was a woman in her late 40, mid forties and she wanted an instant family. Um, she was dating a young man who wanted children but she wasn't in a position to give him children. Although I do want to write one where she gets pregnant on purpose. That'd be interesting. Yoda, like, not Yoda, Yoda, but like Yoda, like his mentor. His mentor. <coughs> um. <laughs> oh, y'all get in the corner. <laughs> Big hitch, oh my God. Well. Let's just add that role to yours. Where'd that go? There we go. Let's just put you right in there. Okay. I'm just going to put that into crazy things y'all say. <laughs> it needs to be put in there. Absolutely. <coughs> Memorialize that. Well, you know, Tim, uh, custody of children doesn't actually work that way. There will be issues. Um. But I would have to say, if I wrote that idea that I have, I would have to put character death on the warning list. <sighs> anyway, so... Um, I've seen that actually done in fandom. I wouldn't do that. What? That killed in a car accident and suddenly Buck has a baby. I mean, I've seen it with Allie. I've seen it with Taylor. I mean, I think because it's been done enough already and because fridging the woman feels a little unnecessary, um, especially because I don't really perceive most of those women as wanting children. So um, I think they'd be the type to give up their children, be willing to give over their child to the biological father if he were interested. But um, but I mean, also, if you're if you want to do a car accident, you can do a car accident. I mean, it doesn't really appeal to me at all. But um, uh, that that particular method doesn't appeal to me. But um I do. I do see Taylor as very child-free. Yeah. Well, Tim, what I would say about Sebastian's circumstances in what might have been, and in Finding Atlantis, and eventually in Lantean Legacy, is that it wasn't an accident. In every single instance, his um, um his mother was murdered. So it isn't you know it isn't the same. As an, it 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 wasn't an accident. It was never an accident. I do like the idea of giving Buck, Buck a baby, though. I mean, obviously. I, I do. I'm stupidly enamored with um, B in Requiem. It's hard not to just stick her <laughs> in all of my works. Like, you just start in the middle and, oh, look, there's there's B. <laughs> and he meets. 
I love kids. And here's a picture of my oh, you want to take a picture of my kid? <laughs> just, they're changing phones in the back of the ladder truck <laughs> because I'm just I'm really enamored with the idea that that Buck adopted the baby from the pipe. It's just like it's just becoming my head cannon. <laughs> I don't know what I'm going to do with it. <clears throat> But in terms of the topic of the podcast, what we're talking about is kind of one of the parts of things about nurturing yourself as a writer is figuring out how to get through the parts of a, like a canon or a story or a storyline or a trope. It's how to get through the parts you don't want and how to keep the parts you do and how to find what is exciting to you and what is, you know, what's bringing your time. And maybe this year, it, it right now, what you really want to write is giving Buck a baby. Maybe Wish Babies is doing it for you or... Um, what other trope would be fun? I'm trying to think of fun trope. Well, Buck leaving could be what's really ringing your chimes. Or maybe you want to explore Buck with um, other characters or whatever. Whatever is figuring out how to make that work for you and how to adapt canon. Um, how, to, how to let a character leave and let canon go. That can be part of, it's, it's of nurturing your writing process. Especially in a canon that has, uh, it's making you salty as fuck. Yeah. So it's, you know, 911 has a lot of things going on with it right now that are just really frustrating to fandom in a variety of ways. Um, across pairings, it's, it's not just like one pairing or um, it's really difficult. And divorcing yourself from the canon elements that you don't like can get hard, especially if they're making you mad. Yeah. Like, it's going to be really difficult for me going forward to treat the character of Chimney well because of what he did. The point where I think I have to do canon divergence, like, in, like shortly after the tsunami going forward. Just, I just, just going to be my divergent point. Just there. Or just before the ladder truck. Just somewhere in that area. Because I just, what happened there is beyond the pale for me. And I can't. I can't. So that's one way of dealing with it is backing up to a place in canon where you're comfortable with the characterizations and the characters and you can work with what you got. Yeah. And one of the things I've been struggling with is that sometimes your headcanon about a character starts to evolve because of stuff. So I'm writing in season four. Um, my, my November project, which should have nothing. And I won't even get anywhere near season five in the course of nano in the course of that story. It's not going to get anywhere near season five. We're basically going to be, I'm basically dealing with season three and maybe slightly into events in season four. Um, and yet, because I know about this stuff, my headcanon of the character has evolved. And it's stressing me out that my original plans for the story, I feel like are affected. Because by, you know what he's capable of now. Right. By my evolved headcanon. So part of how I deal with that is to do some writing that lets me exercise and kind of get some of those feelings out about the character. So that has helped. Um, also just be mindful that um, the character's bothering me and that I need to maybe, if I don't want it to be coming out in the story, I need to watch what I say and do when it comes to that character. And the other option is to just incorporate it after a fashion and let this new headcanon just breathe in my works going forward. Um, I've, I've always found the character problematic, and that's an issue. Because of the, yeah. because of the intimate but fraud was, in season one. And then I they was, had to go and do this. Yeah, I was willing to hand wave it away um, to a degree uh, because of how good he was with Maddie. 
and that he seemed to kind of stabilize. And I still didn't, I honestly, I didn't like some of the comments he would make. I feel like he's a little too caustic um, with Buck, but I could also kind of just kind of let that go because sometimes you have a sarcastic, caustic character and ultimately Buck is a grown up and he can fight his own battles on that front. But those kind of situations in a work environment, if left unchecked, can become very toxic. So, and then we get to season five, and I was like, oh my God, this character. And it, I'm taking the things about him in season one that I didn't like, some little bits and pieces here and there from seasons two, three, and four that frustrated me. Um, and then you tack on some, like, three or four things in season five that infuriate me. And it's very difficult for me to have the same headcanon about this character that I had two months ago. So I, part of, you know, nurturing myself as a writer is to acknowledge that this is happening and figure out how to deal with it, talk it out, write it out, and then figure out what my plan is going to be for how this is going to, I mean, he's not a central character for me in most stories. So to to a big, large degree, I can kind of avoid it. But when I can't, I have to make some conscious choices. I can't just let my id run away with me otherwise there's going to be stuff in my story that i i put there but that i didn't consciously put there and that's yeah. not that's not good you need to know what's what's in your work you don't want to be surprised by things that your subconscious is you know putting in between the lines so when it comes to i have to either make the choice to be very cautious about how i deal with that character and use the kind of headcanon i had before or just go ahead and let some of this new evolving headcanon come into this work and just deal with how that ripples out. Um, and that's my decision point at this point. But it needs to be done consciously, and it is part of that process of... Um, it's part of that writerly process of being in touch with how you want to be as a writer and what kinds of stories you want to tell. Um, I don't like being oblivious to what's going on with me. I don't like not knowing why I'm writing what I'm writing. I'm always a little bit, I'm a little bit mystified, I guess, when people tell me hey, this just, this was out of my control. It just kind of happened. Um, I, no. you know, <laughs> I don't like that headspace. I don't, I don't want to go there. Yeah. I mean, I've had stories that feel like they just kind of flowed out of me, but I still saw my conscious choices and I don't want to be in a headspace where I feel like I'm detached from my writing where it's happening beyond my ability to control. And that's what people describe sometimes, but that's just, that makes me deeply uncomfortable. I don't want to do it. That freaks me out. I'll, I'll, be, I'll, I'll admit that, that that's freaky. Why? Uh, I, 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 I can't handle that kind of thing. You know, I, I need to be in control, but that's a, that's an OCD thing. <clears throat> I had this moment in, in Harry Potter where I was trying to figure out my headcanon for Dumbledore. Um, is he a manipulator? Yes. Is he essentially good, but manipulating for the greater good? Yeah. Is he evil? Where's my headcanon? And when, when I realized is that I don't have one headcanon for Dumbledore, I can explore him in a variety of ways um, and use his canon actions to support them as it pleases me, but getting there uh, with a with with a character like that, it, it it takes work, and it will take work for me to get there with Chimney, where I can write him one way or the other, and being flexible like that, I think is important to your craft, especially in fandom, 
because being able to kind of like twist your character a little bit here and there speaks to um storycraft good night lady holder and it also speaks to like your ability to tell stories beyond canon and your uh your your future ability to continue to function in that fandom because if you're telling the same story over and over and over again you're gonna be boring the hell out of yourself so if you're putting these characters in the same basic space in your head all the time with no variation you're gonna get super bored and one of the ways to fix that is to be flexible when it comes to motivations actions and characterization to a degree you want the character to be recognizable obviously but you want to be able to twist them just enough to be interesting when you're writing them again if that makes sense writing Dumbledore as complicated but essentially good is difficult but I consider it an exercise in characterization control because I don't like Dumbledore. He isn't the worst character in Harry Potter, but he is definitely on my list, which is how he ended up on the hit list, Darkly Loyal. But being able to kind of twist him and move him around in my story uh, is important to me. So getting there with a character like Chimney, who's done something that I find reprehensible, uh, is it, um, it's going to be a work in progress for me. Yeah, it's 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 a pro it's not easy. Well, like I was telling them while you were gone that um, Ryan Dumbledore as one or the other, like good or bad, or kind of in the middle, you know, manipulator. Writing him differently in various stories is part of the way that I keep myself entertained. Because writing the same thing over and over again will get super boring. Yeah, and it's, I mean, I, I don't, I rarely write, a, especially an antagonistic character I perceive as an antagonist, I rarely write them the same way every time. Um, but some characters, it's also hard for me to pivot them into any kind of su really supportive or, or cl close to protagonist role, because I just don't like them. And so that can feel like, even if it's, but c controlling, making them neutral is something I can do. Like I can control them to neutral. And that may be my approach to Chimney in, as I write going forward, is to try to control his presence in a story to a neutral place. But I think that, you know, I don't see how I could do, ha have Buck be close to him ever again. Because the problem is I, as a writer, don't, don't want him in Buck's personal space, right? No, so I agree. I, I just don't see them being close. So it, it, it becomes a problem. Um, but it's something that you just have to acknowledge and work out what you're going to do about it. It's not like it's an insurmountable issue. The, another option, but the, I mean, think, we've talked before and I've mentioned that one of your options is also make canon kind of go away. Um, but the issue with that is um, it doesn't change how your your headcanon has creeped about the character. Even if you, because I actually, one of the things I'm working on right now is a little short where it occurs in the summer between season four and season five, and it prevents all the crap that happened. So in a sense, it prevents the bad acts, but it doesn't change how my headcanon has changed about the character. And that's a problem 
that I have to work on, not changing my headcanon about him, but the awareness and what to do about it. Because I think the best I can get at this point with this character is neutral. No, and I will forever see his relationship with Maddie as mildly toxic because either she's staying with a man who battered her brother on purpose because he could get away with it, or she's staying with a man who lost control of his temper and battered her brother. Which is really problematic. Considering her history. Either way, it's it's awful. It's an issue. It's hard to write their relationship, but um, you know, I'm inclined in a in a in a world where there is the baby isn't a thing yet, you know, which I don't think she's. Yeah, she's definitely not pregnant yet. Um, in Fearless, there's a there's an inclination to not get them together, um, to have it not work out. You know, it just it feels like there's this perception of um, fighting against the fandom norm. You know. Well, like, I also have the inclination to let him die where Doug leaves him, but <clears throat> I'm just saying. I know. I, I know. I didn't, I didn't warn for care. I didn't warn for major character death. The thing is, I do think that even if the character is not a major character in my story, if they're ensemble cast, the entire ensemble cast are the major character. Otherwise, the only major character in. Um, no, I, mean, I didn't mean for you to do that in your story. I meant that I, no, I'm no, inclined no. to do it personally. No, there, <laughs> there is there is an intent. That, now I was just thinking about this story I read where Christopher died and there was no warning. Well, oh. He was already dead. There was no warning for character death, though. And the author's rationalization is that Christopher is not a major character in the show, which is true. He's not. But he is a series regular. Yeah, I think any series regular, especially on, an, especially on a show that has an ensemble cast, <sighs> as opposed but, to... One or two Anytime you kill a child character, you should fucking mourn for it. I agree, but yeah, their their rationale would in the in the. But he was dead at the beginning of the story. You find out that he's dead. He he was already dead at the beginning of the story, but you don't find out until partway through. Um, Tsunami. No, no. Uh, uh, well, d d don't tell me. I don't. I fuck. It's gonna be awful. I don't want to know. I put it in chat. Um. Oh. Anyway, um, why are you even reading that? You, you know you don't like that stuff. <laughs> can I say? I, 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 I have moments. I have. I have. I have. I, I call them my Azure moments. I, it's it's late at night, and I do Thick roulette. Things. Azure yeah, is this I, thing where she goes on on Google and just like puts this wild ass um, search in. She calls it Thick roulette, and then she just reads. And sometimes she shares with us the her unfortunate finds. But yeah, I have I have as moments sometimes late at night where I play flick, flick roulette. And I'm like, oh that okay, and then I'm like, oh my god, I deeply regret my life choices. So anyway, don't judge me. Um, but the thing is, people have weird rationalizations around what the why they don't warn for character death. But yeah, whatever. I mean, I don't because here's here's the thing. There's there's and this is an interesting conversation because as a writer, there is a hes I'm at, I hesitate about. Okay, so let's just make this a topic of conversation. I hesitate about doing anything about Chimney. I hesitate about giving him consequences. I hesitate about breaking him up with Maddie. I hesitate about killing him off. What's the deal? Let's 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 talk about what that is because that is that's actually pretty toxic that you can't feel like you can't explore. Well, um, because you're going to be called a racist. Well, there's that. Yeah, apparently, if you don't like what anything Chimney's done, you're a racist. On you'll be called out on Tumblr and told. So, but everybody will know you know you're a racist. So there's that. If I end up on your fan lore page, <laughs> <laughs> if it winds up on my fan lore page, and I'm a racist. I expect one of you who has 
you know, an account on FanLore who can get in there and edit to fix that shit. Because I was blissfully happy with the fact that I didn't have a FanLore entry at all until recently. And it's terrible. What do you mean, Vickage? I mean, while, while you're answering, but aside from the fact, I think there's this hesitance because, I mean, Chimney and Maddie are perceived as like an ideal couple, right? The funny thing, now here's the funny thing that I find to be really super toxic, is people will break up Buck and Athena, not Buck and Athena, God, Bobby and Athena, people will break up Bobby and Athena so they can put, you know, like Buck with Bobby or something, and nobody says boo. There's no outcry about breaking up a canon couple. But you break up Chimney and Maddie, and people lose their minds. I'm going to write a fic where she marries the hot librarian. Okay. And the thing is, <laughs> part of the thing is, is I really have a lot of issue with Chimney's actions. And I feel like that he's not, he's, and the thing is, it's not just issue. I mean, I think that he, there are reasons, some reasons why he's made some of the mistakes he's made, but he's not getting any consequences. And fandom is just kind of hand waving away. Um, oh no, I don't care about canon contradicting the, um, uh, yeah, we don't I, give a shit about that. I mean, I mean, I wrote toxic and and fan and the canon contradicted me when the next episode aired, so that doesn't that doesn't bother me. Um, I don't worry about them taking the character in a different direction than what I write uh, because I'm only working with what I know at the time or how I felt at the end of a particular arc, you know, and exploring what that was like, regardless of what else they do, right? So that's not the issue. I think it's more. Um, they've sort of made Maddie and Chimney like the fandom sacred cow. And there's this whole, like, almost cultish mindset about those two. Um, and I think I have internalized some hesitance about splitting them up. Um, uh, not not walking that path. Like, I feel like if I were to break them up or have them not get together, like, I would need to warn for it or something. And um, I shouldn't need to warn that I'm going to have a couple break up. That's just nonsense. But I just think it's an interesting double standard that fandom gets so bent about breaking up Maddie and Chimney, but they don't get bent about Bobby and Athena being broken up. Or at least well, the Bobby I think and it Athena boils down to the fetish the fetishization they... of Maddie. Yeah. yeah. Well the thing about the, 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 the one thing about Maddie's arc that I really appreciated was that she didn't need a man to save her. Every step of the way she saved herself. She got support from her brother, but she 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 handled And in the end, she ended Doug. And she lived. Oh, Star. See, I like that. I love your art, Star. She's the one that did the art with the art with the the three that of them. That is beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, it's beautiful. beautiful art. I'm I'm looking forward to your story even more now. So if you have any thoughts about that star about how Maddie you feel cries about... every episode. Here's the thing. Jennifer Love Hewitt is a natural crier. I she just cries. <laughs> She's just crying all over the place. So I'm not surprised at all that um yeah so i mean it's true i mean it's not just random trivia she does cry in almost every episode so i mean they they got somebody who can cry easily and then they told her to just lean into it um but star if you have any thoughts about what it's like to with what you're plotting what you're planning to write what it feels like i mean you may not have much thought about it at all but i know for me it's been interesting to contemplate um sort of bucking this this what has become a fandom norm and the thing is it shouldn't be something anybody has to contemplate but this is part of i think the whole 
nurturing your inner writer process is when you have these issues is talking them out with somebody to, you know, get your, your writing buddy on the phone and saying, why am I hesitating about writing this story? You know? And the thing is, it's not even, yeah, I, I'll, I'll be honest. I don't want people tagging me as being racist on Tumblr because that's just, that's some ugly ass shit right there. Um, but aside from that, I don't actually care if they come at me. It's, that's not even about that. It's, I don't know. I think it's just having internalized this whole situation with how toxic the fandom side of it is around this one particular character and the, and her, her pairing. Um, and not even realizing how much I'd internalized it. It makes me want to kind of do some replotting on Requiem to remove some elements that I don't want explored. <clears throat> I mean, you could. You're at the point where you still, I mean, you haven't put out the parts that have those elements in it. Right. Yeah. You know. So, and sometimes, you know, sometimes you'll get accused of something. Maybe more than once. And, um, you like, do I do that? Do I really do that? And and so sometimes you like have an instant denial about it. But I think part of my process is if if I if it bothers me, I will go and talk to my peeps and say, "Tell me true, do I do this?" Because I had somebody, you know, there's this whole thing about them talking about like people write buck infantilized. They, they call it the baby buck trope, which I have seen actually him infantilized quite a lot but that they're not talking about those stories they're talking about just in that you know that you have to and and i've basically told that i write buck that way and i don't i mean i went back and i reread my nine one more i don't see it (laughs) i don't see it and um but it's one of those things that if it bothered me like if it was kind of under my skin i would ask um kira um i think they accuse anybody that has buck as the main character of doing that yeah. Yeah. So I think that that's, you know, when there's kind of like, you've been pre, I feel like I've been pre gaslit about this whole thing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that actually makes a lot of sense though. It's like, it's like they have this agenda and they like, it's, it's kind of like the Blair agenda in Sentinel. They only want this written a certain way. And if you don't adhere to this, <clears throat> they're going to, they're going to cover you. Yeah. I mean, I went back, I've been rereading um, my So Far series, and I do think, I mean, I do think, canonically speaking, that Buck is more emotionally vulnerable than most characters I've written in the past. And I try to be true to that, that he has a lot, he has more emotional vulnerability, but I also try to write him as an assertive, confident adult. One of my favorite lines is when when they're taking that soldier to see his daughter, and he says, I'm going to cry, I always do. I'm going to (laughs) cry. Yeah. Because he knows himself. You see him watching those videos on YouTube crying. <laughs> yeah. It was adorable. Well, and then you, you, and like, then you realize you, you can practically <laughs> just kind of attribute it to Maddie, right? Like Maddie the crier. She taught Buck to just kind of let his emotions go. Just when you see something sad, just go and cry about it. <laughs> That's the Maddie influence. Um, but I, you know, I don't see the whole baby Buck thing. And um, okay. So the big how people have commented in chat that, um, it's more toxic for them to have the, them together um, than it is to deal with the potential consequences of um, like the stands coming for them. So um, I guess that's I guess that's what it comes down to. And this is part of the the writer process is figuring when something is like under your skin, like you know, like I said, pre gaslit about this situation. Um, How do you deal with it? What do you do? What do you do? You got to talk it out. 
You got to figure out how you're going to approach it. You got to figure out what you're willing to deal with. You know, um, right now, I anything I write that's kind of, you know, even could be obliquely read is anti-chimney. I'm not personally linking or advertising outside of my own servers. Um, so Crossroads and, well, pretty much just Crossroads because I don't link, we don't link fiction on, well, you can, you can link your works under, on uh, Just Right, but I, I haven't been. Um, but um, I haven't been linking any of that on any of like the 911 fanders, fan servers or any of the multi-fandom servers I'm on just because. Well, I haven't either, but apparently some butthole did it for me. <laughs> Well, someone, I don't mean that. If if if, if, if you are the butthole that did that, thank you. I'm I'm glad you enjoy my work. <laughs> they they but clearly they thought, oh, I can't believe. I could see practically them saying, I can't believe this author hasn't been wrecked here. I can't believe these stories haven't been wrecked here. Um, right? Yeah, I get it, and I'm I'm not mad. I, I was just playing. <laughs> it's a very Ao3 centric space. A lot of so it's easy for stuff that's out on a WordPress site to fly under the radar. Uh, Ao3 and Tumblr centric. Um, which is nutty, nutter, nuts to me that they'll get so bent that you're on WordPress, but Tumblr is apparently okay. Which is like, well, that's might because be they worth... can abuse you on Tumblr and re and re tumble your shit, so they can abuse you further. But it's more difficult if you're writing a WordPress. They have to take screenshots and shit. It makes it difficult for them. That was a long time ago, Bry. <laughs> you were the asshole. I'm just kidding. <laughs> It's a long time. I think it was by theoretically. Oh, really? I felt by like, theoretically I felt like, it makes me laugh my ass off every time I read it. it. Well, I, I felt like it was light, and I felt like it it was sex positive, and there had been a bunch of stories linked recently at the time. I think I'm pretty sure it was by theoretically that I linked. Um, although I could be wrong. Um, but I'm there. You know, I like how sex positive it is, and um, that there have been so many. You know, buck not going back to buck 1.0 thing. Which, if you want to write that, fine. You know, I don't care. But it's just it. It, it, it's a personal preference. I don't like reading the "there's something wrong with Buck for getting laid" thing. It, whatever. That's what I always write. Eddie, appalled that somebody would slut shame him. <laughs> it's like, yeah. no, I wouldn't do that. I'd never do that. I think you're perfect. He's beautiful. Get why yours? Should he, why shouldn't he be getting laid? <laughs> right. That should be. That's why I put that line in Requiem. That should be your primary hobby. <laughs> right. Um, but so, I mean, it, these things can, there's lots of things that can affect you in your writing and your planning and little things sometimes you aren't even aware of that just kind of creep in there insidiously and just fuck you up. And, um, you know, maybe your plan for your story is really bothering you because you really would prefer not to write Maddie and Chimney together, but there they are. But I mean, the like other alternative is this just not write them on screen. Yeah, and that that is an option. And but the thing is, it helps to make those decisions consciously rather than feel like this sense of dread about your own story. So because you can write them individually in a story and never have them appear on screen together. Chimney at work, he sees Matt. You know, if you're writing Buck, he sees Maddie separately from him, and you never. Chimney needs a lot of therapy, not just anger management. What I, I do would think say he... is, if Buck had hit him, Buck would have been suspended from his job. Absolutely. That would have been the whole art. I honestly, there's some toxic, like bad feelings between Buck and Chimney. Like when I, when I watch some of the older episodes, I, I think some of Chimney's barbs were a little too barbed. And I think that um, Chimney resented Buck. Um, And the thing is they dialed that down in season two, once Maddie was in the picture. Yeah. Because he was going to be banging Buck's sister. Right. But it was definitely there. So, 
Um, well, I mean, I've been in workplaces that were not, that were a little caustic, um, particularly heavily male dominated workplaces. And if, if I could deal with caustic, you know, I was just grateful a lot of times that they weren't, you know, if, they, if, if it was like a little bit mean, but not sexual, I was like, I'm down for this, you know? Right. They're keeping the I sex out of the work, workplace, but they're being assholes. I can cope. Um, I can be an asshole back. This will be great. <laughs> you want assholery? I got a master's degree in that shit. <laughs> But, you know, the thing is, there there has to be a line, you know, you got to be able to get your work done. You don't want it to be so toxic that you can't function. Um, like my favorite job ever, it was, it was, the guys were pretty abrasive, but they also took back off really well. Right. I mean, but that was the issue is I had to be pretty willing to get up in their face and say, you guys need to back the fuck off. Right. And they always took it fine, but not everybody's cut out for that kind of work environment. So um, the first time I ever told him, uh, somebody sucked my dick, I was in college. Um, and I was working in a cafeteria. And uh, in the cafeteria, in the college, the, the, the football team would come in and eat before games, before, before everybody else did. Um, because they would be getting ready for the game, and the game would be shortly after dinner. So, you know, they would come in and eat early. Um, and their coach was really rigid about what they were allowed to eat before the game. Uh, and so they would each get a plate or whatever, a tray. And, uh, this, uh, this guy came back through. I said, you can't and the coach is giving you, he, he said, whatever, bitch, just give me what I want. I said, you can suck my dick. And I said it so loud that it echoed. Through. And my boyfriend at the time was a defensive tackle, all six foot four of him, 220 pounds. Um, he comes trotting in and he said, dude, you giving my girl a hard time. He said, your girl just told me to suck her dick. He says, well, you can suck mine too. Go, go sit the fuck down. <laughs> and for reference, I was five, I, 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 I am five foot four. And at the time, I weighed about 115 pounds. <laughs> She's five foot three. I'm five foot four. Five foot three. <laughs> Why are you running my fun times? I'm five foot three and a quarter-ish. She's only five foot four if she rounds up. Yeah, my doctor, I, I round up. I am allowed my, to round up at five. You know, honestly, I can round up. My doctor never lets me round up my height. Well, never. you're ridiculous already. <laughs> but yeah, it echoed, right? So my boss comes around the corner. He said, did you just... <laughs> I said, what? <laughs> he said, don't, don't play this with me. We all heard it. <laughs> and by all, the entire football team and the coaching staff and him... And the dean of students who was sitting with him. I said, he was being rude. He called me a bitch. <laughs> Look at what happens when Desert rounds up. Good Lord, Desert. You should you should definitely round up. Don't let anybody tell you otherwise. But yeah, so that's the first time I ever tell somebody to suck my dick. I regret nothing. No regrets ever. And that dude was actually very nice to me going forward. But I really didn't live down telling someone twice my size to suck my dick <laughs> my boss he was like it was funny but next time make sure the dean's not here <laughs> oh don't be a fuddy daddy <laughs> i said look the the dean knows all about me i've been in his office before because <clears throat> i've always i've always what what's it, what, what my mama say she said one day you're gonna let your mouth overload your ass i've always done that Full tilt. I came out of the womb that way. 
That's an interesting term. She also used to tell me that my mouth was going to write a check my ass couldn't cash. <laughs> like, want to bet? <laughs> going to get my ass whooped. But no. But yeah, I mean, fandom, you're, you're going to get judged for what you write. They're going to make assumptions about your character, about your beliefs. They're going to make assumptions about you up to, for everything, minor thing, except for, um, if you write a story where your character is researching coral, they're going to think you're interested in coral. The only line they don't seem to go to, as Kira has mentioned before, is if you write somebody killing something, they tend, they don't tend to assume that you're a murderer. But anything else is fair game. They assume it's you. You're, they're going to assume you're homophobic. They're going to assume you're misogynist. They're going to assume you hate women, that you hate Korean people, that you hate Nebraska. <laughs> but they never automatically assume that you have buried your neighbor in your backyard. <coughs> it's exhausting. So you just got to be prepared for that and figure out how to be ready. Um, and if you're dreading aspects of your story, which I have been, it helps to sit down and figure out what's going on with you. And that's true for any aspect of your writing. If you're having a struggle with anything, it it's worth sitting down and figuring it out. If you're dreading writing falling action, figure out what that's going on with you. What is the deal? If you just can't get to that battle of the five armies, you know, figure out what's going on. I can't write action. That's what's going on. Can't but you know what you. it is? You know what it is? Is I am literally standing in my own way this i know i think you all know that um it's i have this kind of mental block on the idea that i cannot write action it always feels awkward and stilted and weird and it has been a stumbling block for me since well since the very beginning and that's something that i mean it's not easy to work through that kind of thing because I have the same issue about action scenes. Um, I don't know. I practice. I work at it, of course. I when when it, when I need an action scene, I I do it. And the, I mean, sometimes I will try to go. Do I really need that scene? And I'll be hypercritical about an action scene. I will evaluate them much more critically than anything else. I will have my characters. I'll be like, Do my characters need to buy curtains? <laughs> Yes, probably. Do my characters need to have this running from the bad guys and being rescued? No, I don't think I need to do that. <laughs> <laughs> but they're gonna buy the hell out of some curtains. <laughs> but I'll just write the aftermath. It'll be cool. It'll be cool. But I, I still, you know, if it's really critical, I, I do put the action scene in and I do work at it. And I will have to. It's very slow. It feels the writing feels like it's. It feels like it's plotting as opposed to my writing. Usually feels like there's flow to it. And I feel like I'm riding an aged horse. It's like clop, clop, clop. It's just, it feels so bleh. And I get through it though. And I don't know. I mean, maybe I know that the more I do it, the better it will feel. But I still, I don't think it will ever feel as relaxed and natural as other types of writing for me. And that's just, I think that's just going to be the way it is. Yeah. It's unfortunate. I don't know why I can't write action the way I write sex. I mean, obviously not action at... You You know what I mean? <laughs> sex is easy. Why isn't action? Because <laughs> it's a kind of action. It's it's physical. Yeah, There's... I mean, it, I agree it is a type of action, which is why I think it might just be a block, right? Because I think that... I mean, I've read your action scenes. When you get them done, they're good. There's There's no... There's no nothing obvious. I read it where I go, oh, it's obvious she struggled. That's just not there. 
Because sometimes you read something, you know, and it's like you're going, I think this person was struggling getting through this. I mean, there's there's none of that. It, it flows. It feels right. I think you get the right level of detail. Um, but I can tell, but I know for you, just like I know for me, it is the writing doesn't feel natural. And so I'm hypercritical of what the end result is. And I, I go over it more than I go over my other writing. I will say that I have never written an action scene that I was satisfied with. Not a single one. I have I have written one that I was mostly satisfied with, where I felt it came out the way I intended, even if I I could have frustrated myself writing rewriting it, which was the um, the battle scene towards the end of Demon. Um, I thought I thought that was great. It's like a, it's like a whole chapter of action, man. Yeah, I ultimately was happy with how that came out. It was a very long chapter too. I think it's like seven thousand. Um, I was ultimately happy with how that came out, um, but. It was difficult writing. It, I, I swear I could have written three other chapters in the time it took me to re- write that one. Um, I edited the hell out of it. As I would think I was mostly pleased with it. Like in re- I reread it recently, and I was like, well, I could have done a couple of things differently. But I, that, the only thing I get into that mindset about when I reread my own work is action scenes. Everything else, I just kind of let them be what they are. Um, I try not to get critical of past me. Let past me be what past me was. But boy, I can get all up in... Um, being hypercritical of my action scenes, but I felt like it came out the way I intended. It was longer than I intended. I really wanted to get that scene in words, but uh, you're talking about Sentinels of Atlantis. There's not a single action scene in Sentinels of Atlantis that I'm happy with, not one. And yet, some of your action scenes really jump out to jump out at me, um, especially the one where um, Dean comes online. Um, I think that's great. It's just it's very vivid. I felt like you painted it painted an image. I felt like I could see it. Which is what I want from an action scene. I want to feel like I'm seeing what's happening. I want to feel like I'm there. And I that one particularly sticks out to me. Which is why I think, didn't somebody do art for that scene? Yeah. 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 I think it was very vividly drawn. Um, and Which is why I think it inspired art. It's one of my, one of my favorite pieces of art, actually. Um, but no, I'm, I'm, I'm not happy with it. <laughs> I'm never I mean, happy with them, so... Well, I, I totally understand. I mean, I'm that way about most action scenes where I'm like, but I think a lot of it is my feeling about how it felt when I was writing it. That just stays. But all I can do is just um, talking it out with people and try to get out of my own way. I think in the end, um, part of your journey as a writer is getting out of your own way. Yeah. And see, and trying to see the things that, that where, you, where you're getting in your own way. Because like, sometimes I can get very stuck, which for the most part, which is, this is weird. Because you guys know I'm willing to just say fuck off to canon. But sometimes I can get very stuck about canon, too. And so it's weird to me when I get stuck that way. And to me, that's times when I just gotta go, I gotta get out of my own way. I gotta just set this aside and move on. Um, it's easier to set aside events that don't impact characterization than it does to set aside defining moments of characterization in canon. Um, because there's this scene in Sentinels, I mean, not in Sentinels, in, in Target Atlantis, where Elizabeth yells at Rodney after Duranda. Yeah. It was so unprofessional that it ruined her character for me. I agree. So much to the fact that I have to recast her to write her differently. The original Elizabeth. Yeah. Because um, apparently the version of her that negotiated slave labor in the galaxy is more palatable to me than the version of Elizabeth who went to Pegasus and yelled at Rodney. <laughs> I can't explain it. I can't. Um, I mean, I've, Elizabeth had, sometimes a character starts on a downhill 
slope for me. And Elizabeth, I think the action that really bothered me first was her hesitation and her delay about going to rescue Sumner. Mm, uh, um, yeah, I agree. That was like the first thing. And then I think the death knell on her, on that slide for me with her was Duranda. Um, because the Elizabeth who negotiated with the gold would not have hesitated when it came to rescuing Sumner. Yeah. So, but that, that, that moment where she was being a civilian and she was not in the face of an enemy. And I felt like she was being a bureaucrat. It just was so, ugh. And she was also not staying in her lane. No, she was. Um, and sometimes this is the kind of conversation you have to have, like when, especially if you're watching something like you, like let's say you have a perception of a character that is contrary to the popular fanon. Um, that can be part of your process is talking out what you're seeing. Does anybody else agree? And sometimes really good ideas emerge from talking out those issues. Um, whether it's talking out, you know, because so, sometimes we have a yucky feeling about something a character does in camp. But what do we do about it? What do we, how do we, how do, do you just internalize that and, and hand wave it away the way the show does? Next episode airs and there's never any discussion or consequences of that character's really shitty behavior. And talking those things through and um, helping work out your own headcanon can be really helpful to your process. Because I think one of the things that is really helpful um, when it comes to writing is that you understand your own headcanon. And I don't mean headcanon just about the characters in the show you're writing. It's about all the stuff about you as a writer. Like, I don't like that kind of trope. Or, you know, your headcanon about, you know, because like sometimes somebody will suggest a pairing to me that it makes me uncomfortable. Um, somebody recently suggested, uh, like Buck Tony Dinozo to me. Um, I'm not comfortable mm -hmm. with big age gaps. I'm not trying to ship shame. Okay, it is not about that because I had somebody get a little bent with me because they felt like I was ship shaming. Except Tony Dinozo could literally father, literally Buck. be his father, literally be his father, which is they are twenty I, years apart. Yeah, and like I said, I'm not. It is not. Um, a ship shaming thing. If you want to, if somebody wants to write that pair, they should write that pairing. Um, I think it came up in the chat also, like in the last yeah. time we had a podcast or two podcasts ago. If you want to write it, write it. I'm not going to read it, but I'm not ship shaming you. It's just it, those kinds of age get differences, especially if a character is younger, can make me really uncomfortable. The whole May December thing doesn't work for me. I know it's a trope that a lot of people like. Go forth and write it. Go forth and read it. I just don't want to do it. Um, I also have a very firm headcanon about Tony Dinozo and John Shepard. That has nothing to, that's not based on any kind of show reality. It just, I got terribly incepted by my own story. And when and that happens, you're done. You're done. And I can't read them having sex now. Okay. Uh, I, I also can't have Tony having sex with Rodney because get your hands off your brother's soulmate. <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. How dare you? <laughs> I could have I could have Tony and Bobby flirting, but that's about the limit. Because I think Tony would flirt with anybody. But um, yeah, I agree. Except the people but, he's related to. But the thing is, I I do think through when I have a pronounced headcanon about something, whether it's the tropes I like to write or don't like to write, I do try to think through through and um understand what's going on with me and and why something is. I do think that I will probably avoid the character of Chimney going forward. Yeah, I agree. Me because I, the, the, the characterization is difficult. And interpersonal violence is a, is a trigger for me. Yeah. 
I just can't deal with a character who would. It is the violence because I honestly, I mean, I, I write violence. I. It's violence with family. It's the fact that Buck is basically his brother. It's it's, it's interpersonal. It's it's really. You should be able to trust your family not to hit you. Yep. No matter the situation, no matter what's happened, no matter what you've done, you should be able to trust that you're not going to get hit. So. I think avoiding the character a lot is, but sometimes I want to write a, a character getting some consequences or at least some some ripples of these kinds of things. And so, I'm going to go forth and do what I'm going to do. Um, it is domestic violence. Interpersonal violence is domestic violence. It it doesn't have to just be between like romantic partners. Yeah, I mean that that was between family members, which is really appalling and a very triggering for a lot of people. And the people who are big and fans. then it's on not- twitter the showrunner is asking if buck will forgive i mean if, if chimney will forgive buck are you fucking serious uh, mm. let me just take a moment <laughs> look is that still flying all over me and the answer plug your ears if you don't want to hear this the answer in the next episode was no fuck that noise anyway um but when i get hung up about anything I like to be sure that I know who I am as a writer. When I'm hung up on something, I gotta, I gotta work it out. I gotta figure out what's bothering me, why I can't move on. Um, it's awful. I like to under, mm. I like to understand why I like um, certain tropes or why I avoid certain tropes. Um, and the thing is, there's, there shouldn't be any shame in saying that you don't like to write or read a particular. Um, trope that that that's a matter of preference and when it comes to writing nobody can demand that you like a trope that's ridiculous or a pairing although they'll try yeah i had somebody get all up in my grill um all i said was that i wasn't interesting buck and bobby and i'm not mm. it because honestly Mm. i i'm not interested that that feels very problematic to me on many levels it's not just the age difference which i don't like it's also it's abusive the power dynamic power imbalance um the the sort of father son dynamic going on the um it, it feels it just feels really i mean before anybody makes a comparison between tony and gibbs it, it isn't the same at all buck is much younger than tony number one and he's vulnerable in a way that tony isn't even though they yeah. both have daddy issues um out the ass which I know from daddy issues. Um, there, there's a big difference between the two characters. Buck seeks so much validation from Bobby that a sexual relationship would be just immensely toxic. Yeah. That's my feeling on it. Which is why I don't want to read it. Um, but somebody just got really offended that I said I wasn't interested in that pairing. Um, and they talked about, and the thing is, I think it's because that was like the thing that they were really into right now. And they felt like because I said I wasn't interested in it, that they were like under some like lens of judgment or something. But Look, Jillian wasn't judging you, but I am. I'm just. <laughs> I mean, I honestly don't care what other people read. I just wish that they wouldn't care what I read. You know. Um, and if I say I'm not interested in a, in a particular pairing, that should that's that should be all that needs to be said. I shouldn't have to justify or explain or any of that kind of crap because I don't. I'm not interested in. Every time I say on my podcast that I don't read Snary, some asshole sends me four or five links. There is not a fic being written or has been written featuring Harry and Snape as a pairing that I will ever read 
ever. She doesn't care how AU it is. Look, even if Lady Holder lost her damn mind and wrote Snary, number one, one, I'd call her house. (laughs) I wouldn't read it. Because one of one of my hard limits is teachers, st- teacher student. It's like nope, nope. Like there's there's a lot of like um, um college Not not only teacher student, but he was a bully, and he yeah. bullied Harry, and that's just gross. there's there's a lot of there's a common trope. It, I think it was a really common trope in um, I want to say the '90s in original work with uh student teacher particularly college level which they they did at college to make it not squeaky but i find i find that to be yeah just, I, I won't read it now i know some people really like it but uh-uh. it's one thing for people to role play that kind of thing you know but that's 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 two consenting adults pretending one's a naughty schoolboy kind of thing if that's what you want to write go for it if that's that yeah. could be amusing but you know going into it, that it's a fantasy that it's not um a person in power over this other person. Professors, professors should not gross. be banging their students. I don't care if the circumstances are. So, um, I, I just, those, those are my preferences. So I have a hard limit about that. That's not about a particular pairing. So somebody wrote a college AU and they had Bobby the professor and they put Buck having a relationship with him as a student. I would, that would still be a hard no for me. Cause we got two things there. We had a trope I don't like, and we got a pairing that I'm not interested in. Reading. Um, so yeah, it's just it's difficult when people get offended based upon your preferences as a writer or a reader. And people will do that. They'll they'll want you to internalize their preferences into your process. Um and you just gotta you gotta really guard against that. I don't even know what to do what you just say, Alana. I'm not going I'm gonna leave it alone. <laughs> just you're just ruining my life over here. <laughs> Uh, Not you personally, but whoever wrote that ruined my life. I've seen, I've seen that, 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 I've seen, that's literally giving me mono. I've seen several. (laughs) I've seen several. I will tell That's how I found out what Chan was. Oh, girl. Because I was, um, I was looking for fix where where Sirius raises Harry and Harry was like two. And I, and I, well, I realized what was happening and I closed it. And then I went back to it to look at the tags. Because surely this was tagged, right? And I was just, I just missed the tag, and the only tag it had was Chan. So I had to Google Chan. That was the only tag I didn't understand that that was on it, and that's when I found out what Chan was, because I had no idea. But this is my first year in fandom. I discovered what Chan was through Harry Potter fic too. So <laughs> okay, <laughs> I wonder if it was the same fic. No, the um, the it was a different different adult. That's oh oh okay. But yeah. Anyway, whatever preferences you have as a writer, you don't need to internalize other people's wants and desires. If people really would like it, if you made your character more emotionally vulnerable, you don't you don't need to take that on board. What you what you can start to look at sometimes is, am I writing my characters with enough emotion? And that's something you should be working out with other writers or whoever your mentor is or your your writing buddy or whatever, not with readers. Like. If I felt like maybe my writing was flat, like the emotion wasn't coming across, it's not something I usually feel like I struggle with. But I would just toss it Kira's way or Lady Holder's way, and I would say, "Is this coming across as emotionally flat?" Or there's a couple other people too that could maybe ask, "Is it? Is this seem emotionally flat to you? Does it seem like the emotions are not coming through?" And sometimes it is a reflection more of my emotional state than what the writing is. 
Yeah, I did precious little to change um, the wish your heart makes. But when I wrote it, it felt it, it felt emotionally flat. I was really disappointed with what I wrote. I set it aside, um, and then I picked it up like a couple, like a week later, and it was like, oh, okay, that's fine. <laughs> I was, I had PMS. <laughs> it was leading me astray. Now, see, I also have PMS. But my PMS manifests itself, so she sent it to me, and I barely got into it before I was crying. And I think, and Kira was like, well, what the fuck is going on over there? Why are you crying? <laughs> There's no crying just, in fanfic. It just wasn't working for me. But that was literally just my period. I'm just to be honest. I I, um, I have PMDD and um, it can make um, processing emotions um, very difficult for me in the midst of it. Yeah, There's a lot of crying in fanfic. I blame the Sentinel. <laughs> Yeah, I got, got involved in a weird discussion where somebody asked what house, what Hogwarts house Buck would be sort I think it's perfectly obvious that he's a Hufflepuff. I agree. I mean, I think his curiosity and his research binges could be Ravenclaw, but his core personality isn't knowledge for the sake of itself. I think he's pure Hufflepuff. And it's not about saying that he's a Gryffindor because he's kind of reckless, but I think his defining trait is the fact that he's extremely loyal. Yeah, I agree. He's, he's he's so dedicated to to family who he perceives as family that I I I, you know, I, I and I that's have, the root I, of him, that's the root of him not for him blaming himself for Jim hitting him yeah yeah is he just wants everything to be okay and he's he is Eddie called him a, you try to fix things that is what he tries to do with people he cares about he tries to fix. um but I rarely have a character where I'm so where I see them in fandom I go that character would slot perfectly into this house Buck is a total Hufflepuff and I love him it's so you know clearly I don't just somebody asked me once if I just liked Hufflepuff so I'm like <laughs> I just don't write many characters that I think have those kinds of traits until Buck came along I think Christopher's a Slytherin, though. <laughs> yeah, okay. The devious little shit. And Eddie is definitely the Gryffindor. Yeah, yeah. Because only a Gryffindor would be in an emotional crisis and say, you know what, I'm going to join a fight club. <laughs> that is 100% Gryffindor. And illegal one at that. Because he, he could have just gone down some MMA, right? There were options. He could have, there were ways he could have hit things that didn't require him to go break Like, the fuck law. it. I'm going to join an illegal fight club. It's like the epitome of Gryffindor. I'm going to go take as much risk as I possibly can for as little <laughs> reward as possible. Risk my job and the custody of my child because I'm having some man pain. <laughs> that is just literally what happened. But so, you know, what, you know this what we've, what we've done a little bit tonight is kind of like part of my process about how I nurture my my writer is when I'm struggling with something, it helps to talk it out. And this was more about how I perceive characters as opposed to anything specific to writing. But sometimes when it comes to a problem and a plot, sit down with somebody you trust and talk it out. And if you don't have somebody you trust, and I know that's been a stumbling point for um a few people who've like pinged me after podcasts or whatever, get involved in the groups on just right. See who you click with. Do, you know, ask somebody if they have time. We have actually have quite a few people who are willing to step up, um, who I've, who I know are very, very responsive and very um, trustworthy. Um, and I also I say, start out with an idea that you're not in love with. Yeah, that helps. And I have had people ping me and say, 
is this person trustworthy? I don't know everybody on Just Right, but I am familiar with a lot of people. So if I have familiarity with them and you ping me and ask me, is this somebody I can trust? You know, I don't, the thing is, I can't give you a guarantee, but I can let you know how familiar I am with them. That's all I can do. Because I know finding people you trust or with that part of yourself can be really, really hard. But but don't ask me because it's rare that anybody on either one of the servers is an asshole to me. I don't know why. I have a feeling. But <laughs> Jilly is more likely to have witnessed their assholery than I am. Yeah. Or, you know, but I also see how they interact with other people. Yeah. And um, like, and I see, you know, and the people I've interacted since some of the people on Just Right, I've been interacting with. And if they had been a dick about somebody's writing, I probably would have heard. Yeah. So, I mean, mostly the people who are active over there mostly are a good crew. Every once in a while, we get somebody who has weird, weird ideas that comes in, um, has weird no notions about plagiarism, has weird ideas about selling fanfic. Uh, they don't usually last long because, no, I just, I find that kind of attitude toxic and Kira and I just are like, yeah, I don't think mm, so. No. But I know this is a really critical part. We, everything comes back to a lot of times um to, to to talking to other people and if you don't have that group that you or that community or even just that one person that you trust with your writing that can feel like it's like giving you advice that is impossible to take so the advice then that you need to take is you need to work on expanding your story and one of the ways to do that is to get involved we usually have more going on during nano um usually we'll probably do a write-in or two um because Usually by the second week of nano, the kind of the nano melancholy has started to set in. Um, and it helps to have something to kind of focus your focus you. So um, we'll be doing some more stuff over on Just Right. So it's a good time to get to know people that you may not have known already. Um, if you have some ideas you're not super attached to, you could work on finding some people to help you do some bounces. Um, I, I do think an idea that you're not in love with is the best way you can test somebody to see if they're going to mesh with you. Because if you yeah. bring an idea to the table that you're absolutely 100% in love with and you don't mesh well, you, you risk the idea just basically being destroyed. It could taint it for you and you don't, you don't need that. It's like, it's like ideas that we're super in love with. We don't share on the podcast. Like, I mean, everyone... Every once in a while, I stupidly bring something up, and then I go, I deeply regret that. We're not putting that up on CastBox for a year. <laughs> but, you know, like, when I was writing The Mandalorian, I really wanted to talk about it. I really did. Of course, I couldn't because it's my quantum bang. Um, but I never would have given out the details. But I was so enamored with Gratua and what I had done with the plot work and the, the two zero drafts that I had done. And I was just really in love with the story that I was telling and I wanted to talk about it. Um, but again, I went and done it in detail because we, we both had people write stories out from underneath us on the podcast straight up. Sometimes plot beat for plot beat. And you're like, are you fucking serious? You didn't even credit me. You took my plot, wrote my shit before I could write it. And you didn't even credit me. Yeah. And the thing is, it's like, I don't, we've talked before if somebody's inspired and they want to write an idea but they should go forth and write their interpretation of the idea not take exactly what we discussed and write it that's just weird i mean and the thing is i did read a story one time that was it was beat for beat what we talked about in the podcast 
I mean, it was like all the characters, the same, it's the same characters we talked about. It was the same, um, same, same moments in canon, same events changing. Um, it just, everything yeah. was the same. It was beat for beat. It was what we talked about. And they kind of tried to claim that, that, that they'd only gotten the concept from the podcast. It was like, that's interesting. Okay. You, you can say that if you want. I mean, I don't believe you, but. You even use my damn characters I picked out. <laughs> right? Okay. <laughs> Whatever. Sure, Jan. I sure Jan to my husband, and then I had to explain it to him, which ruined my sure Jan. That sure would. I'm going to start sending him gifts on his phone. Sure, Jan. Anyways. Does anybody have any questions? The sure Jan all Tumblr. But for me, honestly, those those people... Those people in the the Tumblr situation and the the Madney pairing. What bothers me most is they've invested so much in this fictional character that they actively abuse real people. It's just it's so ugly. But they wouldn't see it as abuse. Or if they did, they would be like, Oh well, they deserve it. Why? Because they're being mean to a fictional fucking character? Are you for real? Are you being serious right now? But yeah, that is just the, the 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 abuse they're heaping on people. And the thing is, even if they even if they have stopped going out and trying to like bait people on Twitter, because that was happening, even if they've stopped going out and creating like sock puppet accounts so they can leave troll comments on Ao3 and, and on Twitter, send direct messages on Twitter, even if they've stopped that behavior, okay. And just reverted and gone back to just calling them out on Tumblr. It, it's still not, they're still using their names and stuff. They, they're not shy about using people's names, including anybody associated with them. Um, like you can't even beta those stories without getting attacked on Tumblr. On, on a list. So that is so, that is so dysfunctional. I don't, I don't even know what to do. It is profoundly immature psychologically damaging and to a younger writer and cruel and cruel newer to, newer to fandom who doesn't know what to do with this kind of stuff this could be this is how they drive people but the thing is when they get people to stop writing the tropes that they are finding objectionable they're actually getting exactly what they wanted this campaign is succeeding in some ways um because they have succeeded in their gaslighting and getting people to stop and and go against their urge to write some realistic consequences for these characters. It drives me nuts. And someone pointed out in the chat, they wrote a gift fic for somebody, and the person they wrote the fic for got called out on Tumblr. I mean, you actually have no control over the stuff that's gifted to you. Can you None. even say no? <clears throat> I don't know. I don't think so. You can say no. Okay. But the thing is, saying no, declining a gift, means that the person who was gifted it had to have logged in and seen it and said no. But until that happens, that their name is attached to that story. I just find people baffling. But it can really affect your your writer headspace when this kind of stuff is going on. And it's really worth taking the time to take care of yourself and figure out what the hell is going on so that you can be well and write well and not just be in a rut of writing the same thing over and over and over and over again. Not that 5,000 people for buck to fuck isn't entertaining, but it could get to be a rut. <laughs> I appreciate your title, though. And so many, but do you like I use I use Brett as in a pun? Uh, 
So there's a question I said earlier that I write antagonists different every time. Do you do that deliberately as in changing as a writer or because the circumstances change the character in different stories? Um, it's both to challenge myself as a writer to not always just fall into a character rut of always writing a character doing the same thing. Um, but also some stories just I need to, the story demands that a character be written differently. So a character might be more neutral in one story and more and almost villainous in another. Um, so like in Unobstructed Views, Deaton is, he's, he's antagonistic in some ways, but he's basically neutral in the story. Um, whereas in uh, Duty of the Living, he's closer to being a villain, even though he doesn't interact with the characters very much. So, um, and those are choices I made based upon the story, but also when it comes to how I portray characters, I don't want to get ever into a rut of where I just am writing the same character, moving, doing this, you know, with the same motivations all the time. Because it would get super, super, super boring. Very boring. Now, you don't want to put yourself to sleep. Uh, that's how you fall out of your desk chair. I, I'm not speaking from experience. <laughs> Although uh -huh. I did tip over. I did almost tip off my desk chair. But that's because my leg fell asleep. And I, I had the surgery, you know, and um, my leg fell asleep and I put my foot down to like prop up and like shift. And my leg was like, <laughs> it just like, and so I almost tipped down on my chair. The armrest saved me though. 10 out of 10 would recommend an armrest. I, my problem with armrests is that I tend to lean on them when I shouldn't. And, and then it, I get the, the elbow thing. Yeah. And then you yeah. get your. Thing. No, yeah, my, my same problem. Two, my two, two fingers will go numb. Yeah, my ring finger and my pinky finger on my right hand will go numb if I spend too much time on my right elbow. I do it on my left. I tend to lean left. I'm a left leaner. Um, and, See, yeah, I almost asked you, but do you go left too? But the, I stopped because <laughs> why hold yourself back? <laughs> you know that scene in Big Bang where. <laughs> Leonard's mom asked her asked his girlfriend if he still goes left because he preferred the left breast when he breastfed when he was a baby. Oh, and she's like, yeah, so, he actually she, does. I love Christine Baranski and she played that role so well. Does he still go left? I dress left, but that's not really should be a surprise anybody. Are you left-handed? Not exactly. I'm, I'm sort of. Are you one of those people who got like? tortured into writing with their right hand yep okay yeah That's i mean I, probably, I could probably pick up writing with my left hand but i can do anything except write with either hand i can put my makeup on do my hair with either hand i mean there's nothing I'm, i mean i i switch my watch around to be on either um i shoot left-handed actually i don't shoot right hand um but my father insisted that i write right-handed so that I never learned to write left-handed. I could, I could probably pick it up. If I'm really slow, I could write a legible note left-handed. But I just have never taken the time to learn to write left-handed. Almost any by almost any measure, I'm ambidextrous except for writing. Hmm. Well, he's a dick for a variety yeah. of reasons, and also for that. Yeah. His words. He wanted me to be normal. Normal. Mm. Normal. He did mm. it to my sister too. We both would have been lefties if left to our own devices. Well, it seems like the problem might have been him then. Mm. Mm. <coughs> well, if you guys don't have any other questions, we can end the podcast. Well, I can see how being forced to ignore the genuine dominant side of your body could cause issues with balance and 
etc. I mean, it does because, like, when I um, when I when I would engage in activities, I um, like when I was when I took um, shooting class when I learned to shoot because I did take a class. I didn't just pick up a gun and start firing it. Um, I wasn't comfortable shooting right-handed. I had to shoot left-handed. Um, and uh, I don't know why, because I mean, I, a lot of things I'm just fine doing them the way a right-handed person would do them, but shooting, and when I snowboard, I had to, I had to snowboard goofy footed, which is what's something a left-handed person that's left foot dominant. Um, so there's weird body mechanics issues where I tend to favor my left side in things that are physical as opposed to. Well, when I broke my right foot, it was extremely difficult for me to drive. I had to really concentrate on putting my left foot where it needed to go when I was driving because I've always driven with my right foot. Yes, Susan, go ahead. Either of us. Yeah, and you don't need to, if you're on if you're on um if you're on a uh, Discord, you don't ever you don't need to use a contact form. You're welcome to reach out directly. So let's end the podcast, and I'll tell you about this weird wardrobe thing. Okay. Well, I hope that you guys learn something from this and um, that going forward, you're a little more mindful in your craft and in your process and that you take care of yourself in fandom. And if anybody gives you trouble, tell them to suck my dick. Uh, say goodnight, Julie. Good night, everybody.